Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today's episode is an interesting one for Staff Picks because this is one of the rare sequels I will ever talk about on Staff Picks. And I've said this before, if you guys are longtime listeners, I'm sure you're tired of hearing about it, that I just don't like the idea of sequels. I, I do not like how they take all the character development and set up in the first episode and just go from there and don't have to do it anymore in the later movies. But there is one sequel that I think is outstanding. And this is actually a movie I was not planning to do on staff picks because I assumed it was like widely beloved and everyone loved it and everyone thought this was a masterpiece. And the movie we are talking about today is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade from 1989, the third Indiana Jones movie, and some would say the final one. I think we'll just uh, <laughs> be straight out and say it right there. This was the last, the last Indiana Jones. Nothing happened after this. <laughs> but yeah, this is a movie I have a lot to say, a lot to talk about. And I have a guest here who we've been talking behind the scenes about this movie, how we thought we wanted to do a podcast about it just because it's an interesting one to delve into. And again, it's a sequel that I personally think is the best in the franchise. And I believe my guest agrees with me as well. So I'm going to bring him on here. Uh, let's see. He has a history teacher from uh, Illinois. I had him on from my episode on The Rock. So apparently he is my Sean Connery guy. So welcome back to the show, Steve Williams. Thank you, Mari. I feel like because I like pigeonholed into this Sean Connery uh, uh, guest spot that you have that I, I should even be able to do like some great impersonation as I come on here. But I thought about not even mentioning him for 44 minutes into the podcast since that's how long it takes to actually see his face in the movie. But uh, I'm excited to talk about this. Um, I agree with you. It is, in my opinion, the best of all the Indiana Jones movies. And I know there's going to be people out there who are already getting angry um, at how dare we besmirch the hallowed name of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But um, this one has always been my favorite and I can't wait to talk about it. So you've already mentioned the elephant in the room. You cannot do a Sean Connery impression. I, I'm not an impressionist and frankly, I might be, uh, you know, even too scared to try. But here, here's what I found. And I was thinking about this because, as you mentioned, I did the rock podcast with you. And uh, I think we both threw in a few Sean Connery isms and got our Scottish brogue going. <laughs> and because I feel like in the rock, his accent and him being all in his Sean Connery-ness sticks out so much more because you don't expect that from an action hero who is breaking into a maximum security prison. But I find that when I watch Indiana Jones and the last crusade, because he's more of this academic, more of this kind of doddering old man, the accent fits. And I don't think, Oh, this is Sean Connery doing the same accent he does in every single role, no matter what nationality or, or job he has, because he's wearing the tweed jackets and, it just seems like that should be a Scottish guy. So um, I, I don't even think his accent really comes into play as much in this one. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because my wife and I were just talking about this the other night. We're already jumping a little far ahead in the podcast. This is a conversation I wanted to have later. But this is one of the rare movies where it feels like he has to act, like he's actually playing a character that's not Sean Connery. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, 
because yeah, whether it's you know the Hunt for Red October or The Rock or Entrapment or all these '90s action movies that um, really I think brought him a new legion of fans that maybe were too young. Because I, I was too young to know him as James Bond, and I know we'll talk about you know his casting uh, as as Henry Jones Senior as is that nod to to James Bond and his past and. I didn't grow up watching all the old Bond movies, so I, I really didn't become a, a Sean Connery fan, I would say, till probably The Untouchables mm-hmm. in 87. And so then you see him in this string of, you know, great movies over the next 10, 12 years. And as you said, he's, he's, he's Sean Connery no matter what. And what the movie is, what the plot is, it doesn't really matter. But in this one, yeah, he, he's playing Henry Jones Jr. much more so than he's playing Sean Connery. And I really appreciate that about him, actually. Yeah, and the movie I compared this one to, this is a weird comparison, it makes no sense whatsoever until you hear my, my explanation, is the movie About Schmidt with Jack Nicholson. Do you know that movie? Mm-hmm. Because Jack, yeah. Jack Nicholson has to act, and he plays a character who's not Jack Nicholson, and that's why I compare it to this movie where Sean Connery is actually not playing Sean Connery. He's playing so much against type where he's like this bookworm, this nerd, kind of nebbish, helpless in an action sequence. That's so anti-Sean Connery, and as I get older, the more I watch this movie, the more I appreciate it. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I didn't mean to, to, to jump forward there. I just wanted to uh, nebbishly uh, talk my way out of attempting a Sean Connery impersonation. So. <laughs> okay, so that's a very classy way of just explaining you were going to let me down and not making me feel bad. <laughs> that's right. Okay, Steve, I want to I want to... Something I like to do on staff picks is I like to put people in a historical perspective, like how a movie was received when it came out, what the reputation was. And I wasn't going to do it for Last Crusade because I assumed everyone thought this was the best Indiana Jones movie. And I have heard a lot of people recently say, oh, Raiders was the masterpiece, and then there were some other ones. And that is so not what I remember at the time. And this is why I want to do this. might take a little long here. but So... Uh, back in the early to mid-90s, there was a bulletin board on uh, Iowa State University had a BBS, they were called. This is where all the college students in the country or the world would gather to talk about pop culture and news and stuff. And it was called ISCA. Have you ever heard of ISCA? I have not, no. Okay, you may be a little younger than me even, but this was a big thing in the 90s, like a precursor to the World Wide Web, the Internet. It was just bulletin boards. And I remember specifically, and this will be really interesting to people who aren't from my era, that ISCA had a poll. And this is like the hangout of all college students of the Internet in the mid-90s. And the poll was, what is your favorite movie of the 80s or 90s? And keep in mind, this was 1994. So Pulp Fiction had just come out, stuff right, right around that era. And you'd wonder what all these college students, legions and legions of young 20-somethings would say was their favorite movie of all time of the 80s and 90s. And the poll revealed in 1994, the favorite movie of all time was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. That's incredible. And I was, yeah, I was so shocked by that poll, but I also was not because that was one of the five movies I sent in. You were supposed to send in your top five, and whichever one showed up on the most lists won. That movie won, and it shocked everybody who was running that poll. But this just speaks to how beloved this movie was at the time. Okay, well... You know, I say I'm shocked, but at the same time, I'm actually about a year older than you, Mario. So I was in college in 1994, and I was having this argument with two of my close friends in college on a regular basis 
about which was the best Indiana Jones picture. So if you would ask me, I mean, I was not a computer guy. And so I remember getting on the Internet maybe for the first time around 1994, but I wasn't. I had a roommate that was on these message boards, these bulletin boards, but I was never on them. But I mean, the more I think about it now, now that I process that, um, that age group, I could see it. But there was still, I think, this segment that was I, I still would have guessed if you'd have said an Indiana Jones movie was voted number one, I would have guessed in 94 people would have said Raiders mm-hmm. even then. Um, because, you know, the argument is, well, I'm sure we'll talk about is that Indiana Jones was very derivative of Raiders, not not so in, in a negative way, but it just basically copied it and didn't really offer a whole lot new. Um, but, you, you know, if I'd have taken that poll and you said you sent in five movies, if I'm thinking back to 1994, I'm probably sending that movie in, too, because it was it was one I was arguing about constantly with these two buddies of mine that it was the superior Indiana Jones movie. So I'd have probably put it right up there. I was a big Jurassic Park guy when that came out in 93. Mm-hmm. So I'd have had that up there as well. But yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's amazing really. But I think it just speaks to maybe, you know, you, you do this podcast about how these movies deserve more love. I think this is a movie that has the love, but it, people just necessarily haven't spoken out about it. Yeah, or people don't watch it much anymore. And that's the thing with this whole Raiders franchise, the whole Indiana Jones franchise. Like, I like Raiders of the Lost Ark. I remember seeing it like four times in the theater when it came out. But it's not a movie I find myself watching a lot. Like, I don't I don't think it's an especially fun movie. And the reason, I, I've been thinking about this all week, why I like Last Crusade more than Raiders of the Lost Ark. And the reason I would say, now this is could be a perfectly good reason why someone would say Raiders is better, but... Raiders is more of this old school 1930s, 40s serial action telling, storytelling type. Like that was the stuff that Spielberg and George Lucas grew up with, these old serial movies. And that was a throwback to these old serials. And it's very old timey type of storytelling. And to me, uh, The Last Crusade is just basically Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they updated it. It's not made like an old school serial anymore. It's more like a modern action movie. There's much more humor. You could argue this is a straight up comedy at times. And so, to me, it's just a modern version of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, again, I can see why people would prefer Raiders, but to me, this one is clearly my favorite. This was absolutely one of the greatest theater experiences I have ever had in my lifetime. And for years, I used to tell people this was my personal favorite movie of all time. I'm right there with you. I've always felt like the people who accuse uh, Last Crusade of being a copy of Raiders, I don't think that does it justice. I don't look at it as a copy of Raiders. I look at it as more of an homage to Raiders, mm-hmm. but different. And they want to, you, you read all the articles that Spielberg said, Temple of Doom was too dark. It wasn't well received. It wasn't the movie he liked to make. So he wanted to make sure on the third one, he went back to more of what they loved about the original, which, you know, I respect and it worked obviously. But as you said, it was updated and the effects were better. And the the script and the, the dialogue was much, much better, in my opinion. Um, and again, not to come back to him, but the biggest difference in the movie is adding Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's I, I couldn't even tell you if it's Sean Connery himself. I think that's a huge part of it. But just bringing in this father figure, perhaps even if it was a different actor, it might have worked similarly well. Um, but just that dynamic of giving Indiana Jones, this heroic, nothing stands in his way until he's faced with this stern 
father figure who, you know, every time he feels, you know, excited about something, he, he shoots him a look that says just like, calm down. And, you know, it, it just makes him so much more, I think, likable and human just building off that relationship with his dad. I mean, that, that's the key to the movie. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was going to talk about is that I was going to bring up that this is one of the rare sequels that has character development where, like, Indiana Jones is just this larger-than-life figure. You don't really know a whole lot about him in the first two movies. He's just this adventurer. In this one, you learn a buttload about his backstory, about his history, how he became, why he is the way he is. Like, <laughs> the fact that he's, you know, Mr. Badass and can do anything, but his dad just thinks he's an helpless, a helpless idiot the entire movie, which is just hilarious watching Indiana Jones trying to, you know, sell the fact to his dad. I'm a big deal, Dad. You don't get that. And the dad just, like, shoots him this <laughs> look, like, shut up, Junior. Like, there's actual character development in this movie, which is so rare for a third movie in a trilogy. And that's one of the things that I really love about it. Yeah, just like you said, it's not necessarily Sean Connery, but just the dynamic where Indiana Jones has to prove himself to someone who just is not impressed by him. I mean, nowadays you have so many uh, movie series that once they've been going a while, they want to go back and do the origin story and let you know what happened to lead up to what you already know. Mm -hmm. That wasn't being done in 1989, but that's what this is. This is the, the Indiana Jones origin story, and you see exactly why he is the way he is. Uh, you know, people always talk about, oh, now we know how he got the fedora. And now we we know how he got the uh, scar on his chin. And all, I mean, all that's great. And those were great little additions to the script. But it's it's more about who this guy is as a character. And it's built so much on the fact that his mom wasn't around. He's raised by this absentee somewhat father who was just concerned with his academics. And it turns him into this big, tough guy. But even now he's 40 years old and they're going after this amazing quest and, you know, you alluded to it that that scene after they not to get ahead, but after they escape from Castle Brunwald and they're running away, they're they're, they're chased, getting chased on the motorcycle, and uh, twice in that scene, Harrison Ford gets just just this grin on his face, like this is so fun, I can't believe what we're doing, and both times Connery just shoots him a look like, <laughs> what is wrong with you, boy? You know, there is nothing fun about this, and it just the look that the hangdog whipped puppy look on Harrison's Ford face. I mean, it, it it's not, I don't know if it's supposed to be funny, but it is. It's comedy. Yeah, and uh, this is something I've been talking about with people all week on Facebook, that this movie has so many big laugh moments. And that's why I think it was so beloved, why college students at the time said it was their favorite of all time. Like, once you hit about the 45-minute mark in this movie and they introduce Sean Connery, it's just laughs and chase scenes and character moments the entire way. And it never lets up. And those moments that you just mentioned, the look, <laughs> there's one in particular, we'll get to it when we get to it, where, where Indiana Jones runs over two Nazis with a motorcycle, and he's so giddy that he just ran over two dudes. And he just is laughing, and he looks over, and his dad just shoots him that look. And one of my favorite screenshots of any movie ever, that look that he gives Indiana Jones, and then Harrison Ford just shuts up and calms down. <laughs> Well, and, that, and that's the one, like I said, there's two of them, and one of them, too, it's not only the, the just disdainful look that he gives him, but he's pulling out his pocket watch, and he's, and, and he's winding his watch at the same time, because, you know, having good time when you're running for your life is the absolute most important thing. Now, okay, here's one thing my wife pointed out the other night. We're watching, you know, Last Crusade, and we've seen it dozens and dozens of times, and it reminds her very strongly of a more recent, similar movie that came out in the 2000s. She's like, huh, so this guy is hunting for all these artifacts with his disapproving professor father. Did National Treasure just rip this movie off? You know, I am an unabashed 
avid National Treasure 1 and 2 fan. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, I I know that's a big part of why I like it, because it does remind you of Indiana Jones. And the John Voight character of, of, uh, you know, Mr. Gates, uh, the, the Gates father, you know, to me, he can't hold a candle to, to Sean Connery, but it is, it's very similar. And I, and I don't think they cared when they made those movies, how, how much people would say, Oh yeah, like your wife did look at that. It's an exact copy <laughs> because it's fun. And there's something about that father son dynamic where one time they're working together, but the other, it's just like, come on, dad, you know, that just makes these movies so much fun. And, you know, uh, national treasure. I mean, it's not, Indiana Jones, but for what it was, it was it was a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah, and again, it's 15 years later, and people have short memories, so that's a whole new generation of movie fans. So, yeah, even though they're very similar, you could say enough time has passed that it's time for another one. So it's not really a ripoff; it's just Last Crusade for the next generation. And we won't talk about the fact that National Treasure was coming out around the time of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's enough said about that. Yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to mention Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at any point beyond this in the podcast. Fair enough. <laughs> okay, a couple more things. Steven Spielberg has gone on record saying out of all the Indiana Jones movies, this one works the best in his opinion. Just from every perspective, from uh, watching it with a live audience, just from a directing standpoint, from a pacing standpoint, he would agree that this is the superior Indiana Jones movie, which I was kind of surprised. I didn't realize that. I just saw him mention it in an interview recently. And, and I agree with him. And, you know, no one no one knows better than him. I, I think he even feels like you, you took what made Raiders successful and you improved upon it. And as I mentioned earlier, there was so much backlash against Temple of Doom because of the tone. Personally, I know this is a topic for another podcast. I think the backlash for Temple of Doom is completely overdone. It's not as good, certainly. But when you're dealing with the Indian subcontinent and um, these tribal leaders, uh, yes, no one's going to argue child slave labor is a fun topic but it's you know it was a reality and and you know i don't i don't think that it should get as much grief as it gets but i also understand why he wanted to kind of do that 180 back to a much more lighthearted film and i think that comedy and that lighthearted tone is what makes it work with the audience because as you said how much fun it was to see it in the theater and the laughs and the action it it just it just leaves you smiling when when and you finished watching the film. Yeah, although that, that does tie into one other thing I have my notes here right before we get to the plot of this movie. I believe this is the only or at least the first PG-13 rated uh, Indiana Jones movie. I'd have to look that up. But I vaguely remember hearing that, that the first movie is PG, even though that first movie scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Like with the <laughs> the spiders on the guy and their faces melting and stuff. Uh-huh. Like There's a lot of scary stuff in Raiders for a PG movie. And then Temple of Doom... I believe inspired PG-13, but it was only PG. Is that right? You may not know. That, that's what I've always thought, too. It's funny because it's funny how your, mem- your memory plays tricks on you because Raiders came out in 81, mm-hmm. so I would have been seven, eight years old, and I we didn't go to many movies when I was a kid, so I never saw it. And I distinctly remember when Temple of Doom came out, 84, so I'd be 10 or 11, going and seeing it with my older brother, just the two of us. And it's PG, so your parents don't think anything of it. And 
you know, <laughs> walking out of there. And I, I don't think it all really even hit me what I'd really seen. And, you know, when you're 10 or 11, the fact that a dude reaches a hand into a guy's chest and pulls a heart out, you just think it's kind of super cool. Mm-hmm. You don't really stop and think about what you really have just seen here. But as I got older, I remember thinking, was PG was was in was Temple of Doom PG thirteen because gosh darn it should have been but I think you're right I think what I'm remembering is that was the movie that made people think yeah there needs to be something in between here mm-hmm. because that was some pretty serious subject matter for you know ten and eleven year old boys or girls or anyone to be seeing so uh, yes it, it was PG and Last Crusade was PG-13, and yet they're completely different movies. Yes, this is the lightest tone of all the Indiana Jones movies. This is the most fun, the most childlike, yet this is the one that got the PG-13, which I just think is hilarious. And, you know, I don't even know to look up the actual rating, what they what they would have said, because I it, it reminds you so much of the, the national treasure movies because those national treasure movies, you can show kids there's, I don't even know if there's a single bad word in them. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember uh, hardly any in Indiana Jones. I'm sure that the, the PG 13 just comes from some of the intensity of the action sequences. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's very little, I mean, there's a little sexual innu- innuendo, but nothing blatant, nothing graphic, no language. And yet, you know, it gets the PG-13 rating after the movie where the child slave labors and the <laughs> molar ram ripping people's hearts out with his bare hands doesn't. So I can tell you I know where the PG-13 comes from because I remember this very deliberately because I was 14, 1989. I hadn't turned 15 yet. And this new Indiana Jones Last Crusade had come out. And my friend Brian had seen it in the theater. And I said, is it scary or are there nasty parts? Because you're thinking of the stuff like the faces melting, Molaram ripping the heart out in Temple of Doom. I'm like, is there anything like that in the third one? And he's like, well, some dude gets mummified instantly and dissolves into dust. I'm like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's the PG-13. That's where they got it. And that, and that scene, if you, if you don't see it coming, I mean, obviously it harkens back to the, the scene in Raiders where they open the, the arc and people's faces melt. And it's, it's somewhat similar but, uh, yeah, that, that one I could see maybe given a six-year-old uh, pause <laughs> and maybe a nightmare for a night or two. <laughs> yeah, speaking of that, uh, I've, I've had my daughter on the show before. My daughter's 21. I've shown her all these horror movies and scary movies over the years. She's very good with horror movies, has a very thick skin. To this day, she tells me, Dad, there's only one movie you showed me that messed me up. And I'm like, oh, well, I felt bad. What was it? She's like... Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with the heart. That messed me up. So that movie really affected a lot of kids. And again, that's why we went back for the fun the fun topics in the third one. And I don't remember that because I'm, I'm this young, naive kid at age 10 who goes and sees Temple of Doom who hasn't really seen that many movies. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I just walked out of there thinking, man, that mine cart chase scene was awesome and short round is funny. And, you know, that's what really got to me and plus it was really fun then to go to the arcade and play the indiana jones and the temple of doom yeah, video game yeah. my brother and i loved playing that game too so like i'm just thinking of it in terms of the fun aspects of it not like if i really stop and think about it wow there was some really <laughs> really disturbing stuff in that movie yeah i mean all these movies are a little dark and again if you go to disneyland go on the indiana jones ride it's a dark scary ride there's always a little undercurrent of scary but Again, I'd argue this is the best, this is the most fun, 
Um, we said earlier that Last Crusade often gets called a ripoff of Temple of, of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm going to say something really controversial. We're going to piss off all the Raiders fans. I don't think this is a ripoff at all. I think this is the one where they just finally perfected the formula. I 100% agree. It, it's superior to Raiders. It takes everything Raiders does and does it better. There you go. You've said it flat out. So uh, please leave your uh, your at home address where people can send you all the hate mail, all the Raiders fans. I'd be I'd be glad I'd be glad. I, like I said, I've been having this argument since 1992. So come <laughs> at me. All right, so let's dive into the plot here. We're gonna kind of skim through this one. This is like it's action movies are a little harder, or I guess a little easier to talk about because there's less to delve into. But why I specifically wanted to talk about Last Crusade was again because I've heard all this talk lately that Raiders was the only good Indiana Jones movie or the only great one, which I totally disagree with. But there's a lot of historical stuff and like religious stuff and real life stuff that I think is really interesting in this movie, and that's why I wanted to pick Steve because you do this on a daily basis. You're a history teacher. I do, and honestly, the World War II era is probably my favorite topic. I teach junior high, mm -hmm. and um, I try not to I try not to dumb it down for them. Um, you know, when we're when we're talking about Hitler and the Holocaust and all this tough stuff that. Frankly, um, you know, they've probably been exposed a little bit to it before they get to my class, but not a lot. Um, I, I, I don't I don't pull any punches with them. I try to treat them like probably older students than they are. And I, I hope they appreciate that because I just not only are there obviously so many lessons to be learned from that that unfortunately have have come to bear not to the same degree, but certain levels uh, in the past as we as we near. Uh, the current times, but um, just to understand that, yeah, we're, we're, we're now 75, 80 years out from this, and uh, you, you can see so many parallels to, unfortunately, things that have happened, and, you know, it's, it's, it's the cliche that the history teacher is supposed to say the famous quote that those who don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it, but there's so many examples here in this era that this movie is set in of exactly that. So it's, it's true as cliched as it is. Mm -hmm. And I have heard a rumor. You have indeed shown this movie to your class, right? I have on a couple occasions. Now, technically talking out of school here, since I teach junior high students, I'm supposed to get permission before I show a PG 13 movie. Mm -hmm. So I haven't done it regularly, but as a little reward, perhaps or an incentive it's it's been a good one to show uh, just a couple times in the past, and the kids have loved it. And you know they're far enough removed that a lot of them haven't seen it, and maybe haven't seen the Indiana Jones movies as a whole. And so they they've always enjoyed it when I've done it. But uh, I don't make it a regular part of my lesson plans. There are the, the history teacher in me finds a couple things about it uh, slightly inaccurate, but you know I don't like to be that guy who's always nitpicking <laughs> movies for every mistake they make either. Okay, well be sure to point those out as we get to them. I'm curious what what. What uh, nits you have to pick with this movie? Fair enough. Okay. So let's jump right into the movie. Again, all the Indiana Jones movies were well-known for the big, exciting opening sequence where something happens right off the bat. Raiders, you have the classic scene with the giant boulder rolling down after him. Uh, Temple of Doom, a lot of people kind of forget the opening to that one. But that's got the big shootout in the China, the, the Chinese nightclub and then Indiana Jones escaping in the plane and on, onto the, the raft on the, the, the rapids. And then this one is no stranger to the same pattern as we start with uh, young Indiana Jones. So kind of lead people into the young Indiana Jones saga here. 
I love this beginning, uh, and not just because of what we talked about earlier that you you learn, but I think it probably subverted people's expectations because all the Indiana Jones movies, I love the fact that that Spielberg starts them with that paramount mountain and then dissolves it into a shot of something of the same shape. But in this case, it's uh, part of Arch, what's now Arches National Park in Utah, mm-hmm. and we see 13-year-old Indiana uh, with his Boy Scout troop, and they're doing their hiking and whatever they're doing, and you know he stumbles upon these basically grave robbers, and um, as you do in Boy Scouting, as you do, right, exactly, because they're just left unsupervised to you know find these guys, and uh, he and a fellow scout overlook and watch these gentlemen, one of whom I believe was Slash from Guns and Roses. Uh, dig up a uh, the cross of Coronado, and we see immediately where Indiana Jones's real true allegiance lies. Because instantly, as a 13 year old kid, and I teach 13 year old kids, so I I'm pretty well versed in their psychology and how many of them think. There's never a thought in his mind of, oh, I'm going to take that because it will make me famous or rich. It is from the very beginning. That belongs in a museum. He's obviously been raised that way. I'm sure his father had really drilled that into him. He thinks these guys are doing it strictly for greed and for their own benefit. And he's determined to get it out of that. And it leads to just, I think, one of the most fun sequences in any Indiana Jones movie as he escapes from them and they're chasing him. And you see this train coming. And, of course, you're thinking it's the class. He'll he'll get past the train and the guys chasing him will get stuck. But no, um, he's forced onto the train. And of course, it's this great circus train where he's met with all kinds of fun little things to to deal with as he tries to run from these guys. Yeah. Okay. well, we'll talk about this for a second. So they asked Harrison Ford because Harrison Ford, one of the biggest movie stars in the world at this point, he's Han Solo and Indiana Jones. So they're like, who would you like to play a young version of you in a movie? And he said, well, there's this actor I worked with named River Phoenix, who they'd worked with on a movie, I believe, called The Mosquito Coast. Right. And Harrison Ford said, that's my favorite young actor I've ever worked with. He'd be great at playing me. So, again, if people don't know River Phoenix, people uh, my age and Steve age know him because he was considered probably the greatest actor of his generation, died of a drug overdose. But this was a big deal of Harrison Ford picks you to play a young version of him in the movie. So this is all River Phoenix, a big River Phoenix showcase of just him getting chased by bad guys, trying to protect the cross of Coronado. And just all sorts of stuff happens on the train. Let's see. He... Uh, this is where he we learn he where he gets his phobia of snakes, correct? Yes, he. It's funny because a few minutes earlier, he had grabbed a snake out of one of the other Boy Scouts. I think it was maybe the fat kid. I love that guy, um, and was just just holds it up and says, "It's just a snake. What are you worried about?" And that's one thing when you're grabbing one snake. But as he's attempting to escape through this circus car, he falls into. Uh, well, there's an entire car filled with just reptiles of all sorts, and he f- falls into a giant vat just filled with literally hundreds of snakes. And I think that experience could maybe uh, scar you a little bit more when they're all around you. You're already running on adrenaline. You're scared as it is. And then all of a sudden you're face to face with literally hundreds of, of snakes that are crawling through your clothing. And, you know, and and that, that it's just, like I said, it's just a great because you know from the earlier movies he hates snakes. You figure, oh, that's not that unusual. A lot of people don't like snakes. 
But now you understand why he doesn't like snakes very clearly in this scene. Yeah, and that's always one of the biggest running jokes. If people haven't watched Raiders and Temple of Doom in a while, that's one of the running jokes that Indiana Jones is indestructible. He's the toughest guy in the world. Nothing phases him, but he's terrified of any little snake. He has this huge weakness. So it's funny to see him in this one, how he developed that phobia. And it's just a cute little moment. And it's followed up a couple minutes later when... Uh, River Phoenix is in a lion cage, and he's trying to use a whip to keep this lion from attacking him. He whip, accidentally whips himself across the face, gives himself a little scar. Sure enough, Harrison Ford has this really iconic scar on his chin. So they're trying to develop a backstory how, how Indiana Jones got all these little traits. And I was actually reading that, as you said, Harrison Ford handpicked River Phoenix and, and had loved working with him on the Mosquito Coast. And, and I read that River Phoenix, when preparing for the role, wasn't going to try to be Indiana Jones. He, he didn't try to pattern how he acted this rollout on Indiana Jones from the first two movies. He wanted to be Harrison Ford. Mm -hmm. And he watched Harrison Ford when he was in and out of character to try to basically be this, this actor, but at a much younger age. And so I think that just brings the whole story of how the scar, which obviously was on Harrison Ford in real life, how that came to be, I just think that's a great moment that they threw in there as well. Okay, so we'll fast forward a little bit here. So River Phoenix escapes from these treasure hunters, gets back to his house. And again, we're in Utah in 1912, which, yeah, which begs the question, are they Mormons? Are the Jones Mormons? I, they very well could be because uh, that's, you know, big Joseph Smith led the troops out there from right, right, right near where I live, actually, in Illinois, and set up uh, his his compound out there and everything that he did. And uh, maybe that's just the, the backstory of, of the Holy Grail belief that we didn't know about. <laughs> it could be. Now, I could buy that Professor Henry Jones is Mormon because he, he comes off as very, you know, professorial, kind of serious. I can't picture him, like, joking around and stuff. But, like, Indiana Jones is getting a lot of tail for a Mormon guy. So I don't believe he's Mormon. That's just <laughs> my, my, my argument here. He may have strayed from the flock a bit as he got older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, young Indiana Jones, 12-year-old, escapes from the treasure hunters, runs home to his dad. And this is where we meet Professor Henry Jones, the disapproving father, uh, professor of medieval studies. And, of course, he's working on his Holy Grail diary, which we learn later is his life mission. This is all he does is learn about Grail lore. And so Indiana Jones runs home and says, Dad, Dad, I got this treasure. And the dad's like, Junior, Wait. He's like, but dad, it's important. He's like, count to 20 in Greek. So this is the kind of love childhood that young Indiana Jones had. The father who, when he wants you to wait, would make you count to 20 in Greek just to make sure you've learned your lessons. And the look on Junior's face. Sure, he's impatient as, as most boys would be at that age. But you know he's been told to do this Greek counting many times before and he you can tell he just hates it <laughs> yes you see the dynamic very quickly so yeah indiana jones wants to show his father the treasure his, his father is just not impressed by this at all could not give a rip and this is where the police show up led by your favorite character in the movie i heard the fat bugle kid who is also in this cub scout troop i don't know if i feel good for this kid or bad because i looked him up and it really looks like the actor who played him, who I didn't even write down his name, but I don't believe he was in an ever in a movie after this. And so it just, and maybe he's grown up to be this personal trainer or something, but I, I just, 
I don't know how easy it would be to go through life as the fat kid who runs up to Indiana Jones when he was a young boy and really weirdly blows a bugle in his face for no apparent reason. And like, that's how you're known for the rest of your life. I mean, it's something, I guess, but he was typecast as fat kid who blows bugle. Yeah. I mean, he, he reminds me of that fat kid in the sandlot, you know, like it's, it's like, unfortunately when you're, when you're a, a kind of a funny fat kid in a movie, when you're young, I don't think it matters what happens when you get older because you're always going to be that fat kid. <laughs> I was thinking of the poor kid from bad Santa. You, you know, that kid. Yes. That poor child whose parents put him in a movie at that age. I felt horrible. <laughs> anyway, we've, we've gone into a fat tangent here. We'll get back off. So, yeah, so uh, Indiana Jones is reprimanded by the police. You stole treasure from these treasure hunters. That is their rightful property. And young Indy's like, this belongs in a museum, his fa- famous refrain. But the, it turns out the on the side of the... Uh, the law is on the side of the treasure hunter, so he must give the cross of Coronado back to this guy in a white hat and a white suit. And the guy runs off, and all his minions are cheering, and Indy's pissed. But we do get a nice little moment here where the treasure hunter gives him a special item, the guy who, who actually found the cross of Coronado. And he actually is kind of sympathetic to Indy that he showed so much uh, you know, pluck trying to get this treasure. What does he give to him? This is the origin of where Indy gets his famous fedora. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I believe the treasure hunter's character, I think, in the credits may just be named Man with Fedora. Um, and he's, it's, it's very foreshadowing because this man, besides the fedora, he has the leather jacket. He's dressed very similarly, finding his treasure as Indiana Jones will dress for all of his adventures when he becomes an adult. And as you said, he... He says, you, you lost today, kid, but that doesn't mean you have to like it. And it's kind of this ceremony, almost knighting ceremony as he takes off his fedora and puts it on young uh, Henry Jones Jr.'s head, which obviously will stay on his head for probably the rest of his life. Yeah, and here's the funny thing. Like, this movie, it's set in 1912 at the start, and then all of a sudden we flash forward, and now we're in the modern day, the present. And I always forget modern day means 1938. It's not really modern day, modern day. Right, and I was thinking about this because when I think about this movie, this scene, for whatever reason, is the one I never think about. And I don't know if it's just because of the the thrills you got starting the movie with this just this this really neat um, chase on the the train and all of that and seeing Indiana. But I, I understand completely why they put it in. You need the payoff. And 26 years later, Indiana finds himself on this boat. And there, once again, is the guy with the white hat and the white suit. And in this case, after getting drenched with approximately 40 million gallons of water, <laughs> Indiana Jones is able to recover the cross. Coronado, and uh, it's going to end up being, I'm sure, put in its rightful place in a museum. So it just, I guess, speaks to his stick as a character that he lost it when he was 13 and got it back 26 years later. Yeah, this is the scene that I always yada yada over because I wasn't even going to mention it on the podcast, really, where we just flash forward. Indiana Jones is on a boat. Now he's 38 or no, 
30 something. I don't know how many years later, but yeah, he's fighting the same guy. He gets the cross back. He kills a bunch of people in the process and it's business as usual. So basically the takeaway is that it took him 25 years, but he finally got this cross of Coronado takes it back to his college, which is I think Barnett college or something like that. And this is where it's, we get yada yada. Basically all we're trying to do is fast forward this movie until we get to Sean Connery. That's how I look at it. Yeah, you're pretty much right. I mean, we have similar scenes to, to Raiders of all these adoring students that are hounding him and he frankly doesn't care and he sneaks out the window. And uh, even though we don't see Sean Connery, we're setting it up because he goes to his house or Harrison Ford goes to uh, Sean Connery's house and the place has been ransacked. And of course, at that point, not really sure why. Marcus Brody, you know, has shown up and, you know, we'll have more to say about him uh, as a character in this movie as well. But uh, all of a sudden, it, Indiana's struck with this revelation that, oh, I got a package today. And he opens it up. And of course, it's the Grail Diary that you alluded to earlier that his father had been working on all the way back in 1912. And now he has sent it through the mail to uh, Indiana Jones and he's... Shortly thereafter, accosted by some uh, somewhat swarthy-looking gentlemen who take him to a fancy apartment to meet one of our antagonists in the movie, and that's uh, Walter Donovan. Okay, yeah. I, I will skim through this as much as I can, because we got to get a lot of backstory here to get up to Sean Connery introduced into this movie. So there's this treasure hunter named Walter Donovan, who is, has been leading this expedition out in the Middle East to try to find the Holy Grail, and he hires Indiana Jones to help him. He's like, because we, we came very close, and our project leader disappeared, and we know that you can help us out. And Indiana Jones is like, well, why would I want to help out? Like, I don't study the Holy Grail. That's my dad. You got the wrong Jones. And this guy Donovan says, well, that's why we contacted you. Your father was our project manager and he's disappeared. So we don't know where he is. He may be dead. And so Harrison Ford or Indiana Jones is like, well, my dad is not really the field agent type of archaeologist. He's a bookworm. He just sits in libraries and studies stuff. He's way over his head if he's out there digging up the Holy Grail and there's people trying to kidnap him. He's like, he's very concerned about his dad. So the goal is we have to get Indiana Jones out to Venice, Italy, where this whole movie is basically going to start. And this is kind of the Steven Spielberg reputation. So many of his movies, regardless of the subject matter, deal with this relationship between fathers and sons. And when Indiana Jones is faced with the news that his dad, who doesn't belong out there, who can't handle himself, his nose is always in a book, is out there, and now no one knows where he is, you completely understand why. I mean, obviously, it's the the thing that propels him into action. And as you said, he goes to Venice where they are to meet with this Dr. Schneider. They're assuming some probably other bookwormish adventurer type man and of course it's this beautiful young blonde uh from austria who immediately harrison ford's character indiana jones is smitten with and as we find out later his father had been as well and that leads to uh, them starting to find clues and to me the first real comedy scene in the movie when they go into the old converted church which is now a library and they follow the clues to find the big X marks the spot, which will lead them to the tomb of one of the knights that they find underground. And when I showed this to my kids, they thought the scene where 
Indiana Jones is trying to bang on the floor tiles to get it, and it's interspersed with the librarian stamping the books. They thought that was the greatest thing they've ever seen. Yeah, that got a big laugh in the theater. I always remember that. That's the first of about maybe 10 really big laughs in the movie. If you guys haven't seen it in a while, it's a library with a tomb underneath it where there's all these grave markers where they have to get down underneath to find some uh, markers to where the Holy Grail is. So Indiana Jones is banging on this tile floor with a... uh, some kind of little stand. I'm not sure what that is. What would you call it? It's like a rope, like when they have the little velvet ropes, little rope holders. Yeah, I don't know, even know what they call those things. Some sort of, yeah, rope holder sounds good to me. Yeah, he's just banging on the floor, and every time he bangs, we cut to this librarian who's stamping books, and the stamps keep getting synced up with him banging on the floor, so the librarian keeps looking at his stamp saying, am I doing that with my stamp? Is that what that noise is coming from? It's, again, a big laugh. Okay, Before we get too far, it's really going to be all action and chases from here on out. Do you want to talk about the Holy Grail? And this is something I say because Steve and I are not perhaps the most religious people in the world. He was raised Christian. I was, I think I was in a church a couple times before 1985. But we may not be the best people to talk about this, but we should talk about exactly what the Holy Grail is and why it's a big deal in the story. Are you, do you think you can handle that? Well, I can try. As the, uh, there's some exposition in the scene with Walter Donovan where he's explaining, and um, the the legend that really came out, I believe, in the time of King Arthur. So we're talking, I think, the 12, 1300s, is that um, the Holy Grail was the cup that Jesus Christ used at the Last Supper, and then that same cup was taken when he was crucified on the cross, and his blood when the Roman soldier stabbed him in the side was collected in the cup as well. So obviously for a a, a Christian, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, this is obviously a a priceless artifact. And over the years, of course, it's disappeared. And during the crusades, it was recovered and no one seems to know where it is. And uh, it's, it's kind of a legend, but at the same time, for for a treasure hunter, I think regardless maybe of whether you're religious or not, for a treasure hunter, it's, it's, it's just this pinnacle, I suppose, because of its significance to such a large percentage of the world because of what it signifies, but also because of how long it's been missing and just the mysteries around it. Because even Indiana Jones, if there's one guy... Whether he's religious or not, which he, he doesn't seem to be, if there's one guy who would maybe understand kind of some religious significance, it's the guy who three years earlier saw the Ark of the Covenant <laughs> opened and what that did. But yet still, here he is three years later talking about it as if it's a fairy tale and a bedtime story. And you can tell he just really isn't buying that this this cup has any real significance, which, of course... By the end of the movie, he's changed his tune on. Yeah. Yeah, and to fill in some of the details on your story, the cup was lost for a thousand years. Apparently, three brothers, Knights of the Crusades, found it, and they were tasked with guarding it until eternity. And two of them died after like 150 years. They lived a long life because they apparently drank from the Holy Grail. And apparently, one was left to guard the cup. And on his deathbed, he explained where it was. They left maps and all sorts of clues. And again, very much like National Treasure. There's all these clues and markers and symbols out there. We just have to find out where they are and that's the premise of the movie although like you said indiana jones doesn't necessarily buy it or even care all that much he's really just here to find his father at this point 
And I find that interesting because we don't know why his father is so obsessed with this. We don't know if his father was a was a much stronger uh, believer and and it, and it did hold religious significance, or maybe it was simply an academic archaeological find. And that's that's never really explained. Um, but I think that leads to the tension and the struggle because Indiana's very resentful of the fact that this is such an obsession for his dad. And it's led to so much strained relationship between them, even though we never find out why it's so much of an obsession for his dad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only hint I think we kind of get later is that at one point uh, Indy says, Jesus Christ, and the dad slaps him and he says, that's for blasphemy. So it's clear the dad is much more religious than Indy is. One thing that I wanted to say is that, you know, I not really don't have much of a religious background, but even as a kid, I was taken by this movie and how reverential they are about the Holy Grail and how well explained its whole mythology is and the music that plays whenever they talk about the Grail. Like, I remember just being transfixed by this movie as a kid. Like, I don't really know what the Holy Grail is. I don't really care. Like, I probably don't buy the story in real life. But, like, this movie treats it as such life and death, and it's such a real thing to these people, and it means so much, that it always won me over. I just really appreciated how Spielberg especially told the story of the Grail with such earnestness. When you read about some of the other earlier scripts and story ideas they had for a third Indiana Jones movie... I was reading about this. They, you know, they had a, a script called the the Monkey King, which had some Scottish ghosts that they would find uh, that they would fight. Excuse me, and then they'd end up in Africa searching for the Fountain of Youth. And then there was uh, um, a storyline with something called the Garden of Immortal Peaches, which apparently is from Chinese mythology. Which I don't know how well that's going to go over with American audiences. So I I think once they got to the point where they settled, because they said we had originally thought of the Holy Grail and Spielberg said, "Ah, I just don't know. That's I don't know how that people connect with it and so forth. And then they came back to it. And once they bought into it, as you said, they really bought into it. And this is yet another example of his relationship with John Williams and doing the music. And as you say, the music is so reverential and and almost hymn-like and 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 very respectful anytime that they're talking about it and and on this quest and it's you get those snippets of the original raiders theme and that and so forth but the music in this movie is so underrated because he took the themes of the movie i think and and did something really special with them yeah okay i want to talk about the music for a second but that does remind me of one thing that you talk about all the other how many script changes this movie went through like I'm amazed this movie turned out as well as it did when I read some of these original script ideas that I read that their original plan was they just wanted Indiana Jones to be in a haunted house. Like, would that have been anywhere near the masterpiece that this would have been? Yeah, it's just amazing when you read, like, these are successful filmmakers and you read some of these treatments and your ideas and you're like, thank God someone had the the wherewithal to stop and go, no, this isn't going to work. And I understand understand yeah we've got to get back to moving away from the darkness of temple of doom and everything but it yeah it's incredible really that they finally got to a story that is is so well put together based on some of these earlier thoughts that they had yeah although do keep in mind these are the same people that made kingdom of the crystal skull which i will point out out of all the movies i have ever watched in the theater is the one i wanted to punch the most I don't think I've ever been as disappointed in a movie as I was that one because you wait 
oh. what was it, almost 20 years for it, and the excitement builds. And you, like I said, you and I are the same age, and that came out in 2008. So my third child, before that, so we've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. We weren't getting much sleep. I struggled to stay awake in the theater <laughs> in that movie. I looked forward to it for so many years, and I couldn't even keep my eyes open. That's how bad it was. And it's like, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. I can think of lots of movies that are worst. It's just the movie that I hated the most. That's all I can say. Like, And there's so many people our age that are feel the same way. Although, I have had people pitch that, that movie, Crystal Skull, to me on staff picks. They're like, they're like, it's really not that bad. It deserves more love. And I'm like, get the hell off of my podcast. You're not. We're not talking about Crystal Skull ever on staff picks. I've never seen it again since I watched it in the theater, if that tells you anything. Yeah, I can't even imagine why I would. I, I remember the nuking the fridge scene, and then I remember Shia LaBeouf, and I don't remember a whole lot else, honestly. And that's the thing, and I, I've tried to you know, get my, my kids, especially my, my – I have two teenage boys, and they love the action movies, and they love the Indiana Jones movies. And they've asked me, like, are we going to watch – kingdom of the crystal skull i said hey you're on your own man you can make your own choices in life because you're not going to get it from me yeah i like to say this movie's called indiana jones and the last crusade this was his last crusade he never did anything again they he and his father rode off in the sunset and they died of global warming or something i don't know they just died just let's say it ended right here i think that's the way it should have been <laughs> All right, well, we're falling way behind here. We're not even to Sean Connery yet. We're an hour into the podcast. Okay, so we're in the library in Venice where Henry Jones uh, disappeared and Indiana Jones and Elsa Schneider go underground. And this is our first big action sequence, although there's a couple little in-jokes here that I have to point out where earlier in the movie when uh, Indy's teaching class, he's telling them, you know, archaeology, it takes place in a library. You don't, you're not out in the field. There's no adventure. All you're doing is researching it and reading. And he's like, X does not mark the spot ever. And so da -da -da -da, we flash forward to here. And to get underground, he has to dig through a giant X. So X literally does mark the spot, which I just thought was a cute little joke. And, of course, it's played off as an, a Roman numeral, and it's the number 10. And I, 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 I'm not the film aficionado that you are, but I think one of my favorite actual shots of this movie is, is as, as Indiana Jones is – you know, they're all searching for the 10, the searching for the X. And all of a sudden, Harrison Ford kind of looks down at the ground and he's starting to realize it. But in order to really see it, he's got to get up to a higher level. And as he climbs this winding spiral staircase, the camera follows him up next to it. And then he gets up the top and it, it's the shot from above and you see this giant X. And yeah, it makes you chuckle because you remember the earlier line. In this case, yes, X did mark the spot. Yeah, this is a very clever movie. Lots of fun little gags, little subtle jokes. There's one, another one right here. They go underground into the, the tomb underneath the library, and there's a little painting of the Ark of the Covenant, which, as Steve pointed out, Indy found in the first movie. And Elsa's like, what's that? And he's like, that's the Ark of the Covenant. And she's like, are you sure? He's like, pretty sure. <laughs> Which, and they even play the little theme music from Raiders of the, yeah, they even play the little theme music of Raiders of the Lost Ark just for a second as he says that line, just a cute little gag. And and he, this is even, you know, some hearkening back to you know, Raiders as they're going in this underground tunnel and there's rats all over the place and it's, you know, they're getting in Dr. Schneider's hair and it's it's gross. It kind of reminds you of some of the things that uh, 
Willie Scott had to go through in Temple of Doom and some of these gross-out scenes. And eventually they find their way into the room where they find the knight's tomb. And uh, it has his shield, which has a complete breakdown of all the clues they need. Because they know they have to go through a canyon and there's a, you know, a river and all these sorts of things. What they haven't been able to figure out is where they start from. Mm-hmm. And when they find the shield, they're able to find and, and that the, what, what the starting city is where they need. But, of course, then they have to get out of there alive because they are suddenly being chased by this kind of shadowy uh, group of men who light the whole place on fire and they have to find a way out where they eventually swim through and come out of a manhole cover outside the church. Yeah, okay. So this is a subplot I'm just going to give very, very short uh, shrift to here. The This is the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword, who I always forget are in this movie. These guys that are tasked with defending the Holy Grail. So when Indy's underground, they set the whole place on fire. He and Elsa have to escape. There's a big boat chase. All these guys in fezes are coming after with machine guns. And they kind of end in a truce at the end of the scene where the guy in the fez, the main guy, Kazim, says, why do you seek the grail? Is it for your glory? Is it for his glory or for yours? And Indy's like, I don't give a crap. I'm just here to find my father. And so this seems to appease Kazim, the defender of the grail. And he says, all right, well, if you need your father, he is being held in the castle Grunwald on the Austrian-German border. May God speed you in your quest. So... This is, we're done in Venice. He's going to go find his father. And now the movie's really going to kick up into a higher gear because the minute he finds Henry Jones, this is honestly one of the greatest hour and a half movie sequences of all time. No question about it. And of course, I think the other thing that I like about this movie, and as we're, we're getting to Castle Brunwald here, you feel like, okay, I'm in familiar territory. You know, Indiana Jones is out there looking for a priceless artifact. He's got the beautiful sidekick who's going to help him along his way. And now they're going to go track down his father. And um, one, I, I love the scene as they, they get to the castle because, you know, how are you going to get in? You're not just going to knock on the door and walk yourself in. So he plays this uh, Scottish character and puts on the whole accent, which I think is fun when you realize you're about to see Sean Connery in five more minutes and, uh, you know, says they're, they're there to see the tapestries. And um, one thing I, I find interesting about this scene is, of course, the butler who answers the door says he doesn't buy it for a second. And he says, if you're Scottish royalty, then I'm Mickey Mouse. And but you don't actually see his lips moving when he says it. Ah. And that's originally because the line that they originally had him say was, if you're Scottish royalty, I'm Jesse Owens, which, of course, in a movie set in 1938, dealing with Nazis, that makes perfect sense because the Nazis have watched this guy win all the gold medals at their Berlin Olympics. But probably smartly, Spielberg and the producers thought, are people in 1989 really going to have much of a connection with Jesse Owens? So... They dubbed in the line about Mickey Mouse, which I think was probably a good choice. I think more people are going to be familiar with that. And and after he says, I'm Mickey Mouse, Harrison Ford decides, well, enough of this. And he just beats him over the head so he can get where he needs to go. Yeah, okay. So we're in the castle. This is the Castle Grunwald. And we don't really know who the bad guys in this movie are yet. 
Now, remember, in the first movie, it's Nazis. In the second movie, it's the thuggy cult or whatever they're, the Kalimas. I forget what their name of their cult is. So Spielberg's going to go back to the well here. Well, it worked in Raiders. Let's just make the Nazis the bad guys in this movie, too, which, again, we haven't seen any Nazis in it yet. But all of a sudden, Harrison Ford and uh, and Allison Duty, that's Elsa, they're walking around the castle. And this is where they realize this castle is really a front. It's like a... a <laughs> a Nazi war center. There's all these Nazis in a control room, command center inside. And Harrison Ford just gives one of the greatest underplayed lines of his career. He just says, Nazis, I hate these guys. <laughs> yeah, that's just such a great line because, of course, as, as the viewer, you're thinking, okay, here we go again. It's the Nazis, the bad guys. And, of course, since Indiana Jones has such a history with them, he's obviously feeling the same way. Now, what I love about this movie is Spielberg's going to turn that on its head a little bit. We don't know that yet, but who's really the bad guys in this is going to be a little more nebulous and murky. And it's going to become apparent here real soon that people aren't who they really claim to be. Um, and, but for, at this point, Indiana Jones knows what we know and that's, Oh, it's the Nazis and it's 1938 and these guys are terrible. And, Pretty quickly, as they wander around, he figures out where his dad is, and then he's got to do the classic Indiana Jones where he he uses his whip to, to move to the other side of the building and then crashes in through the window where we first see Sean Connery as he bashes his son over the skull with a potentially priceless Ming vase. <laughs> yeah, there's a great moment here. He smashes the vase over Indy's head, and he's like, Junior? And Indy just stands up and says, Yes, sir. And I saw an interview with Steven Spielberg where he said, the minute we saw Indiana Jones address his father by saying, yes, sir, being deferential to somebody, I knew this movie was going to work because it changes the dynamic completely. Where Indy is actually subservient to someone. He called his father, sir. And right from the start, his father is just making fun of him. Like, why did you come through the window, junior? And he's like, well, dad, I had to come save you. So the dynamic is established right off the bat. Yeah, I just think it's a perfect introduction. Uh, to see their relationship, as you say, from the very moment and that great line where I thought you were one of them and dad, they come through the doors. And uh, then, you know, there's the scene where right, right as the scene continues, Sean Connery expresses such concern and Indiana thinks that he's concerned because his head is potentially bashed in. But no, he's actually concerned because he thinks the vase is priceless and can't be replaced. And then, of course, He's like, oh, I'm so relieved. And India's like, no, I'm fine, fine. And he's like, no, I'm relieved because the vase is a fake. And he <laughs> tries to show him how he knows that. And it's just a great, great introduction. Like, like we've said, it's 45 in, minutes into the movie, and we're just seeing Sean Connery. And that dynamic just starts immediately that we will enjoy for the rest of the movie. Yeah, although there's a, an especially cute moment here that I kind of forgot where where, okay, now he re, uh, Henry realizes why his son has come to rescue him, and he's like, Dad, I was in the knight's tomb in Venice. I was underneath the library. I saw the grave of Sir Richard. And, like, his dad is, like, open-mouthed agape. Like, really? You were there? And he's like, you wouldn't have wanted to be there. There was rats. Yeah, I know you hate rats. And so they're having a nice little father-son moment. And this is maybe the first time in his life Sean Connery, Henry Jones has ever been impressed by something his son has done. His son says, Dad, I found the city where the map starts. I know you have the map, how to get to the Grail. I know you know everything. You know all the all the clues, all the keys. You just didn't know the starting city. The starting city is Alexandretta. And his dad's eyes just light up, and he's so proud of his son. He's like, 
Junior, you did it. And you get the sense this is the first time Indiana's ever done anything his father's been remotely impressed by, and it's a big moment. And then it's going to immediately be Dash when Henry says, well, thank God I sent my diary away and I don't have it. And he's like, well, I brought you your diary. And the dad immediately reverts to thinking his son is an idiot, saying, you moron, I sent you that diary so the Nazis wouldn't get it. Why the hell did you bring it back? So, again, Indy cannot impress his father at all, ever. And we'll see that throughout the movie, that these moments of of pride and, and are just so quick and they are quickly dashed by, okay, time to move on. And you know, you're an idiot. So uh, as you alluded to immediately, it's like, I sent the diary away so they couldn't get their hands on it. You weren't stupid enough to bring it back. And certainly that this, and, and then of course this is the moment where um, the Nazi guard takes Dr. Schneider and is basically pointing a gun to her head and saying, I'll shoot her, give it up. And Indiana's like, no, no, don't shoot her. And Henry Jones, who we don't know at this point, but obviously had some history there, is like, yeah, she's one of them. Go ahead, go ahead. And, of course, Indiana, he, he doesn't want to believe that. He's had relationships with this woman and thinks she's on his side, and it turns out, no. And so I, I alluded to this earlier. This is what I love that this movie kind of subverts your expectations because you assume Dr. Schneider is just the, the pretty blonde cohort, kind of like Willie Scott was in Temple of Doom. But as it turns out, she's playing the other side. And we're as surprised by this, I think, as Indiana was here. <laughs> yeah, this is, again, just one of the things that gives me so much joy when I watch this movie. Indiana Jones fails at almost everything he does in this movie. And that's the thing that's not that's not what we've seen in past Raider or Indiana Jones movies. He always succeeds. In this one he always fails and his dad will always comment on how he fails. And like Steve said, it happens right here where first the Nazis come in and say, "I have the book, you have the Grail diary in your pocket." And and uh and uh the dad starts berating Indiana Jones. Why why did you bring my diary back, Junior? And then Indy gets mad. Don't call me Junior. And he just grabs a machine gun and machines everybody. Machine guns everybody. But then they he fails again when Elsa tricks him into giving up the diary and handing away handing over his gun. So again, Indiana Jones will fail at almost everything in this movie and his dad will be constantly be there to remind him of it. <laughs> It's, you feel so bad for him in so many ways because he's this 40-year-old man and all he wants is his dad's approval. And when he gets it, it lasts about two seconds at yes. a time. I'm a legend, Dad. Didn't you see my previous two movies? And the dad's like, I was working on my Grail Diary. Why should I see such movies? He's like, I'm a legend. People know of me around the world. And he's like, well, you shouldn't have brought my book back, moron. And again, this is a subconscious thing when they cast Sean Connery in this role and these people realize this is James Bond and that's part of the why they wanted him. Even though of course Connery was resistant at first because in real life, he's only 12 years older than Harrison Ford. And he didn't think, you know, that was enough of an age difference to be able to play his father, but he's played one of the most iconic adventuresome great action heroes of all time. And yet he's now playing a character who couldn't be less impressed by his son's globe trotting adventures. <laughs> And again, it just subverts your expectation. You're like, this is James freaking Bond here. And yet he could care less because all he wants to do is stick his nose in a book. James Bond with a briefcase and a little umbrella. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So 
they're going to be caught and tied up. Again, the Jones brother, the Jones boys are not a really good uh, action duo. They will, will fail repeatedly. And they get tied up here, and they get put in this uh, room tied up. And this is where we've learned that Walter Donovan, the one who has hired them, is actually the bad guy. He shows up in the castle and says, I told you not to trust anybody, Dr. Jones. And now look at you. You and your father have failed. My Nazi friends now have our hands on the diary. Nice work. I will be rich beyond my wildest dreams. And we learn this treasure hunter, Walter Donovan, is the real big baddie in this movie. Yeah, it, it's amazing. You know, he had said that famous line, do not trust anyone, whatever you do. And this is when he gets to once again, it's kind of like, Henry Jones senior here, he's basically slapping down Indiana and saying, you screwed up again. And here you trusted Dr. Schneider and this is what it got you. And the, the uh, little Nazi commander, I don't remember his name, you know, he's ready to kill him right off. And uh, they're like, nah, you know, there's pages missing from the diary. And so we don't know where it is. And this is, this is that the great part where they realize the pages are missing and they realize, Oh, he must've sent him with his buddy, Marcus Brody, who, you know, as a re- reappearing here from Raiders and he's a little different character in this one, because in this one, his entire role is just the bumbling idiot who, you know, as they say, gets lost in his own museum. But in this, in this scene, you know, great delivery of the lines from, from Harrison Ford about, He's got a two-day head start, and he knows every language, and he has friends in every village, and he'll you'll never find him, and he'll disappear. And that's the immediate cut to the scene of, of Marcus Brody wandering the village of Iskenderun because he can't figure out anyone who can speak English, and he has no idea what he's doing. Yeah, I saw an interview where Steven Spielberg talks about that. Like, Marcus Brody is a very distinguished, learned professor and student of archaeology. In the first movie, he's very competent. And in this movie, he should have been Harrison Ford's sidekick. It should have been Brody and and Indiana Jones. But because they introduced Henry Jones, they didn't really have a place for Brody anymore. So they basically made him mentally challenged. He, he is. He he has the IQ of a twelve year old. Uh, it's, I mean, the the fat kid with the bugle would have been a better <laughs> sidekick, I think, even as an adult than than Brody. I mean, I feel bad for him, and I and I know. You know, maybe it changed because the actor Denholm Elliott had contracted HIV shortly before this movie was filmed. And so he was sick during a lot of the filming. So maybe that changed what they wanted him to do. And he's an older guy anyway. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be the big action hero. But at least, you know, maybe give him his dignity and respect. But instead, <laughs> he's just this idiot. OK, so here we go. We are 56 minutes into this movie. This movie's two hours long, almost exactly to the minute. We're halfway through the movie. You have Sean Connery and Harrison Ford tied up together, back to back in a chair in this uh, castle. And I swear to God, the next hour of this movie is all one long chase scene with huge laugh punchlines every 10 minutes. That's really the entire movie. Yeah, and it starts here great where they, you know, accidentally the, the the lighter gets dropped as they try to burn through the ropes and the whole room is on fire. And so they scoot over to the fireplace and accidentally trip the lever that spins them around. And now all of a sudden they're in the Nazi uh, headquarters. That got a big laugh in the theater. I have to say that was a huge laugh. They spin around. They're facing the entire Nazi command center. And Sean Connery just says, our situation has not improved. <laughs> That's such a great line. And then they, they come around again and they stop this time in the Nazi room in this, this female commander, and, and I mentioned some nitpicky stuff 
from everything I've learned about Hitler and his regimes, there was no females in any position of power. But anyway, uh, she turns around and sees them. And I just love the shot of they show these two guys tied up in a chair and they're just flashing this dowdy looking Nazi commander, their biggest how you doing smiles like, you know, trying to charm her. And of course, she just loses her mind and starts screaming and. And, and in classic form, then they, they, they spin around again as, as men with guns not more than three feet away from them certainly can't hit them with, with their shots. <laughs> Apparently, George Lucas hired some of the stormtroopers from Star Wars to play. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I love the uh, the female Nazi commander. She basically goes all Frau Farbissina from Austin Powers here. <laughs> Send in the fanbots! <laughs> it's great but yeah so it's a big chase scene these nazis chasing connery and harrison ford through the castle at one point there's a they go upstairs they're in a secret room and they can't figure out the way out sean connery sits down to try to take a you know he's out of breath he doesn't do chases henry jones and as he sits down he opens a secret staircase and just a great laugh moment as harrison ford falls down the stairs backwards this staircase he didn't know was there it's just a it's a fun little stunt although it does tie into something i read that harrison ford did a lot of stunts in this movie to the point they're like you know it's a little dangerous you just let the stuntman pop in and do it once in a while but when he falls down the stairs you can see that's really harrison ford and that's not the only time in this movie he's going to do his own stunts yeah i read that he's had he had the same stuntman in, in all three of these original films and uh at one point the stuntman had to go and say hey can you give me something to do because you're doing it all yourself and I'm just amazed because when he was filming this movie, he's roughly the age that you and I are now. And I can't tie my own shoes without falling over. And, and yet he's falling down staircases and jumping off buildings and God knows what else. I mean, it's a credit to him. Yeah. OK, so here we go. This is my personal favorite scene in the movie. They've escaped the castle. They uh, they've gone down the secret staircase. They end up outside and Indiana Jones sees a little motorcycle with a sidecar. And again, I cannot watch the scene without smiling with delight because I love it so much. It's like the next five minutes are almost a perfect action movie where they get on the motorcycle in the sidecar and there's four Nazis on motorcycles after them chasing them. And I will give you the honor of describing one of my all-time favorite movie scenes here. It, it's just, yeah, it's amazing because you you get the, the Nazi who peels off and, and tries to get ahead and come back around and... and uh, Harrison Ford grabs a, a flagpole and basically jousts him and knocks them off. And, uh, and then, you know, he, he has the guy coming up and, and there, there's the classic shot of uh, the guy chasing with the motorcycle doing random wheelies and sticking his wheel up on the back of the sidecar. And then he comes up next to them and he sticks the rest of the pole in, in the wheel. And of course the whole thing flips up and down. And as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, he's, he's blowing these guys up and, and uh, doing all these things and using flagpoles and God knows what else. And Sean Connery's character is just sitting there. And like, he, he looks like he needs a book to read because <laughs> he just looks bored out of his mind. And, you know, it, it's just so adrenaline pumping. And his son is so excited when he's taking out these Nazis. And 
I mean, Henry Jones Sr. could not be less impressed. <laughs> yeah, I just, again, everything about this scene is perfect. This is like Steven Spielberg at his peak as an action movie maker. Just the music, the timing, the stunts, the, the humor, it's all so perfect. Henry Jones could not be less impressed by his son. Indiana Jones pulling off all these amazing moves, you know, evading these guys on motorcycles, and then uh, jousting the one guy. Although, if you watch, Sean Connery actually kind of smiles right before he jousts the one guy. He's actually kind of impressed by that one move. Well, there you go. Again, though, it's that fleeting two seconds of credit before it's back to you're an idiot. Yeah. But again, if you ever have a chance to see this movie in a theater, if they ever bring it back like a 30th, 40th anniversary, whatever, are we already past the 30th anniversary? Holy crap, we are. We are. Yeah. (laughs) But if they bring this one back, see it in the theater just for this moment when the motorcycle rides right up next to Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones decides, hey, I have a flagpole in my hand. I can stick this in the spokes of that motorcycle. And he jams it in there and it just blows up in the most majestic motorcycle explosion. That is one of the greatest moments I have ever seen in a crowded theater. The audience just pops so hard to that. It was it was amazing. And and I and I and I read and not not to ruin it for anyone that uh, the MythBusters TV show actually studied this entire scene and especially that particular takedown of the motorcycle to see if it was beyond the laws of physics to stick a flagpole in and 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 you know they determined that it would not fly up in the air or whatever but I'm so glad that they ignored that and did this because you're right it just makes you know the crowd loves it and then they get to the end of this and you know Harrison Ford and he's ready to go off and this is when uh, his dad says we we got to go to Berlin we got to get my diary back and this isn't quite what he expected to actually go to where the Nazis are headquartered. Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is where we see the dynamic of Henry Jones and Jr. really play out, where they get to this crossroads. They've escaped all the Nazis, and Indy's like, let's go to uh, where uh, Marcus Brody is and go help him with the map and avoid the Nazis. And and Henry Jones, the dad, says, no, we have to go to Berlin because that's where my diary is. He goes, it doesn't matter if they know where the Grail is. They won't be able to get past all the traps without my diary. And Junior's like, but Dad, the Nazis have the diary right now in Berlin. You know, it's probably in Hitler's hands right now. And the dad's like, doesn't matter. We have to go get it. All that matters is that diary that has all the keys to getting the grail. So this is where Junior realizes he's screwed. His dad is going to force force him to drive right into Berlin in the middle of the height of Nazism. And this is the, the scene that I think a lot of people remember and, uh, you know, it gets a laugh because you, you, you then arrive as there's this gigantic Nazi rally going on. And it's, it's like everything you think of when you think of Hitler and his control and just all these goose-stepping minions who will do everything that he want. And because you're trying to create this stereotypical scene of the Nazis, there's this just gigantic pile of books that's burning and again, this is where the, the history teacher nerd kind of comes out in me. I have a hard time think. I, I can't say. I, I actually tried to look and I couldn't find it. But the big book burnings that we know of in the Nazis were like right after Hitler came into power, early 30s, 1933. By 1938, I'm guessing they've rounded up most of the Jewish authors' books and burned them already. I can't imagine they still have too many left. But, you know, it makes for kind of this quintessential very stereotypical nazi rally and of course uh indiana jones is is kind of shoved through the crowd and finds himself 
face to face with Hitler and he has the diary, which he's taken back from Dr. Schneider and uh, Hitler grabs it and signs an autograph and crisis averted as everyone takes a deep breath because they thought, oh, this is the end. That is a great scene. And I remember at the time, that is just one of the great scenes in Indiana Jones history. Maybe the best in the movie. I don't know. Yeah, but Indiana Jones goes back to Berlin, steals the diary from Elsa. And in the midst of this big rally, he accidentally gets pushed right into Hitler. And, you know, you can just sit. You're sitting there in the theater. It's a big moment. Hitler's staring him right in the face. Indiana Jones is staring him right back. And Indiana Jones is dressed in a Nazi uniform. So he looks like a soldier, got the book in his hand. And it looks, for all intents and purposes, like he's giving the diary right to Hitler. But that's the, you know, Spielberg's going to get the laugh out of the scene any way he can. And Hitler just looks down, doesn't realize this is the Grail diary, just autographs it as if Indiana Jones is some adoring little fanboy and just shoves him aside. And you can just, again, in the theater at the time, you just you hear everyone exhale because there was so much tension in that moment. It was just great. And that look on Harrison Ford's face when that happens is just classic. Like, he feels as much relief as, as we did. And I, I was looking this up and I found this fascinating that here's this, this actor who is told you're going to play Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yay, uh, <laughs> probably not your plum role that you're looking for, but they, something I read said, this is the fourth time that that actor had played Hitler in a movie. <laughs> so he obviously has the look. Maybe here's an idea, buddy, maybe shave your mustache a little bit differently. <laughs> and then they won't keep casting you as Hitler. Now, now which is a worse stereotype or typecasting to have? Fat kid who plays Bugle your entire career or Adolf Hitler your entire career? I, I Well, I mean, it's hard to not go with Hitler, but uh, it's probably closer than you'd think. Yeah. They're like, hey, we have a, a movie uh, for you to play in it. Uh, you'll be playing Adolf Hitler. He's like, Adolf who now? I've never heard of this guy. Who? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess, is it better to be noteworthy for something unfortunate than nothing at all? I don't know, but... <laughs> But he gives a good autograph. We saw that. So, we, so yeah, in fact, that's the benefits. So not only is this Holy Grail diary the most important book in the world, but now it's autographed by Adolf Hitler, so it's worth even more on, like, uh, eBay and stuff. Right. They're going to make a pretty penny after this. <laughs> yes. Okay, so, here, so Indiana Jones and his dad escape Berlin. They get Hitler's autograph. Again, great, great laugh scene. And now we get another one. Again, this movie does not stop with these big action set pieces slash laugh moments where Indiana Jones and his dad are going to escape Berlin on a Zeppelin, which would have been the mode of transportation in Berlin in 1938, I guess. But it's not going to go as smoothly as they hope. No, they they think they're home free. And before the Zeppelin can even take off, they look out the window and see the evil Nazi commander that they'd already dealt with at the castle uh, boarding. And uh, this is when, for the like 47th time in these movies, Indiana Jones is able to steal the outfit of, of someone else and <laughs> blend in. And he's acting as a ticket taker as the Nazi commander does this great thing where he takes his little beating stick and pulls down the newspaper to reveal uh, Henry Jones senior there. And right in that moment, uh, Indiana comes up behind him and asks for his ticket. He turns around, sees and recognizes. I just love how big his eyes get and they get even bigger probably in the next minute as Indiana Jones throws him out the window onto a huge pile of luggage. Yes. And then of course the punchline, yeah, Indiana Jones has punched out this Nazi officer 
And all the people in the Zeppelin turned to him like, why would that ticket taker punch out a Nazi officer? Is he asking for trouble? And Indiana Jones just says, no ticket. And everybody on the Zeppelin pulls out their ticket frantically and shows it to him because they don't want to get punched and thrown out the window, which I remember, again, just, I keep saying this, huge laugh in the theater. I remember specifically where I was, where I was sitting, what the audience was like. That was one of the biggest laughs I'd ever heard in a movie, that moment right there. That's, this movie is just chock full of them. It is. And then, and then you follow this up with they think they're safe, but then they realize the Zeppelin is turning around, and so they realize they have to escape, and thankfully there's a small biplane attached to the bottom so yeah okay before before you get into that there's one scene i do want to talk about here before that okay just because it's important to the plot there's a lot a big long exposition scene here with them on the zeppelin before it turns around where they start trying to understand each other oh right and it's a yeah it's a big big moment of character development where we learn that you know indiana was a neglected child his dad never played with him talked to him and the dad's like are you kidding i was a great father i taught you self-reliance you never had to rely on anybody else you learned independence and so they go back and forth with what kind of childhood indiana had and you can just tell he was a miserable lonely child who got no love from anybody but the dad doesn't see that and again it's just a neat little scene but where it culminates is this is where they start talking about the Grail Diary and what's in it and why they needed it. And this is where we learn about the three booby traps that we're going to face at the end of the movie, which is a big deal. Yeah. It, again, it subverts your expectations because they sit down, they're going to have this big heart-to-heart talk. And, and, and Henry Jones says, okay, fine, let's talk. We got just the two of us. What do you want to talk about? And India says, I can't think of a single thing. And that's when Henry just okay, so let's open up the diary and let's talk about these three tests we're going to have to pass because there's booby traps, and if you don't know how to handle them, you ain't getting the grail. Yeah, and I'm impressed because, like, Indiana Jones is barely listening to his dad right here, yet he's going to recall all this with perfect clarity later in the movie. So I have to be, I'm impressed with how well he can remember things he's not even really listening to. And it's a good thing because, of course, I'm sure his dad knew all along, well, you're the one going to go get this because I'm in no position to do it. Yeah, okay. We'll talk about the booby traps at the end. A super iconic scene in the movie where Indiana Jones has to pass these three tests. Maybe, again, I keep saying this, maybe my favorite part of this movie. But I'll just say now, they're the breath of God, the word of God, and the path of God. And we will talk about them more later. But before that, now we get to the scene Steve was getting to where the Zeppelin's turning around. So, uh uh-oh, time for another chase scene. I guess we haven't had an airplane chase in this movie yet. Let's do that. And again, it's just this action filled with comedy because... Indiana can fly the plane, but as he makes clear, he struggles with landing it. And so Henry is going to have to man the machine gun in the back as these Nazi planes are coming after them. And of course, in his inimitable way, as he's attempting to shoot the Nazis, he shoots the own tail of his own plane. But again, there's this great line where Indiana says, are we hit? And you can see Henry thinking about it for a second. And he says, yep, they got us. Yeah. Sorry, son. You know, it, it just it just makes you laugh again, and they they end up basically crash landing as they promised. But these these planes are are still after them, and uh, then they get in a car. But it's it's not a car chase because they're in the car, but the planes are still after them. And there's this iconic scene of them entering this tunnel, and the plane tries to fly in after them, and of course it doesn't fit, and it shears off their wings, and they're just driving just out for a Sunday drive as this 
fiery plane passes them in the passing lane uh, going through the tunnel. And there, there's just no other movie that that would ever even think about putting that on screen except Indiana Jones. Yeah, just again, as I say, everything they do, they fail at in this movie. And it's just a comical scene of them flying away from the Zeppelin in their little biplane, one of these little stunt planes, as two, you know, state of the art fighter jets are coming after them. They have no chance. And they crash. Yeah, they go in the tunnel. Then the one, the one plane flies into the tunnel. And we get the great laugh scene. This is where. The German pilot has flown his plane into the tunnel, sheared off his wings. He just kind of slides past them in the tunnel. And as he slides past, just the bewildered face of the pilot as he's looking at them like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> yeah, the look on that pilot's face is one of the best moments in the movie. No question about it. And here comes a great bit of comic timing yet again. Again, there's just one after another after another where they get out of the tunnel and there's still one plane coming after them. And the Henry Jones, the dad, says, well... They don't come any closer than that. And we immediately cut to a bomb being dropped from the other plane that hits them right in front of their car, which is, is indeed closer than that. They almost die. Yeah, the car is uh, stuck bottoming out in this massive crater that's caused by this huge bomb. And so now they're, they, they, they've been chased by a plane while they were in a plane. They've been chased by a plane while they're in a car. And now they're going to be chased by a plane while they're on foot. And uh, this is, again, where you expect Indiana to do something heroic and something to take out this last plane, but the tables get turned here and Henry, uh, as they're on this beach coastal area, decides that as this plane is approaching them ready to shoot, he will use his, as he said, he remembered his Charlemagne and he runs after this flock of seagulls with his umbrella and it causes them to hundreds of them to fly up in the air right into this plane. And then it, amazing fiery crash as it blasts into the side of the 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 cliffs and the last plane is now gone yeah it's the first big heroic moment for henry jones the doddering professor he makes all these birds go up distract a, the nazi plane crash into his uh you know cockpit and he gets, basically gets the old sully sullenberg treatment where the birds take the plane down and it's a great moment and and henry jones just kind of strolls back to his son with a smug look on his face and it's kind of a funny little moment where the dad actually gets to be the hero in one of the scenes and that's going to lead us to again you think okay Maybe we're done with that, but they've still got to uh, go after the bad guys who have a head start because they figured out Alexandretta is the starting and they're they're on their way to recover the Grail. And now you you've uh, you've got Marcus Brody who is be uh, has been captured earlier in the film because he's an idiot and uh, he's in a tank and they have to rescue him. And so there's this huge scene coming up after this with. Um, you know, tanks and horses and the brotherhood of the, the cruciform sword comes back into it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, I would, I would, I would say this is the big action showcase of the movie. It, yeah. It's the next 20, 30 minutes of just insanity as it just goes from one thing to the next. Yeah. Okay. To set this up. And again, we're almost at the end of the movie. Once the chases start going, they just never end. They're just one after another, but this is the big action piece where, the Nazis are trying to get to uh, the canyon of the crescent moon where the grail is hidden. They're in a tank. They have a whole you know, convoy behind them of soldiers. They have Marcus Brody hidden or kept as prisoner in the tank. Indiana Jones is chasing them. 
And it's going to start, if I recall, like Indy can't do much. It's just him against the entire army, and he can't do much. But this is where the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword shows up again, the Protectors of the Grail, and they start a big gunfight with the Nazis, and it just devolves into chaos. And I will say, before we get to it, I barely took notes in this scene because there's so much going on. I just kept a little list of highlights, of stunt highlights, and I have about ten of them are going to come up here. Yeah, and you've you've completely forgotten about the the Brotherhood, even though they had this huge part in Venice, and this iconic uh, uh, boat chase scene, and you know they're going to do whatever it takes to protect the Grail, and then they show up here at a very opportune time because there's not much that Indiana and Henry and and they've gotten Sala to come along uh, again from Raiders, um, but you know three of them with a you know a couple of horses and a couple of guns aren't going to do much against these tanks, but. As the Brotherhood starts this shootout, it gives, of course, Indiana and 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 Henry the chance to um, kind of come in and try to save the day. And uh, yeah, there's just one crazy stunt after another. You you could tell that there was again, it, it's an homage to Raiders, where you have the the classic scene where Indiana is is being pulled behind the truck with his whip and and just that incredible action scene. And now you're going to get very similar elements with a tank as there's fights on the tank and, and all these things. It's just, it's just nonstop for the next 20 minutes. Yeah. And I saw Spielberg say that he wanted to replicate the truck scene in Raiders, but they had this tank. It's a real, real slow, unwieldy 1930s tank that doesn't move real fast. So they couldn't have a high speed chase. So he's like, I have to have more stunts in it, more action and more comedy to make up for the speed. And oh boy, does he. Okay, let me go down my highlights here of all the stunt highlights in this scene, which are astounding when I look at how many there are. So at one point, Indiana Jones shoves a rock into the gun on the tank, and when they shoot the cannon, it blows up the inside of the tank, which is a great stunt. At one point, Indiana Jones is pulled. He's like tied to part of the side of the tank with a strap and he can't get off and they're trying to run his face up against this canyon ledge and it's a really dangerous stunt and i read that harrison ford did that himself did you hear that i did yeah that he, he was just gonna uh, uh hang on this turret that comes out of the tank and the, and the crew would run along the top and just rain down all these rocks and dirt all over him as this this tank is gonna and and you know the way it's filmed of course He's only saved at the very last second by the the tank uh, driver getting an errant ricocheted bullet that kills him. He slumps forward and the the tank shifts uh, gears because otherwise he's gonna the Indian is gonna go face first in this outcropping and die a horrible death. But as tends to happen in these movies, good things happen. But yeah, just the hanging even though the tank isn't moving that fast, just the danger and the fact that he's willing to do it is is very impressive. Oh yeah, and we have. People fighting on top of a moving tank tread. We have Harrison Ford getting his face pressed against a moving tank tread. At one point, uh, Sean Connery is helpless on a tank tread being pulled to his death. He's going to get run over. Indiana Jones has to whip him and keep him from getting run over. And then my two favorite stunts in the scene. Again, it's hard to describe this whole scene unless you've seen it. But there's a scene where an entire convoy of Nazis pulled up, pulls up next to the tank. And uh, I think Henry Jones, or one of the good guys inside, just shoots the side gun into this convoy and blows up this entire truck from point-blank range. It's a great shot. 
But the one that got me as a kid that I always loved is where Indiana Jones has got a gun and he's trying to shoot the main Nazi bad guy and these four Nazi stooges run up and jump in front of him all in a row and he just shoots one bullet and it goes through all four of the Nazi stooges at once and they all die and slump to the side. And Harrison Ford just gets this look. He looks at the gun like, what the hell just happened? And again, that's kind of reminiscent of the the, the famous uh, scene in the marketplace in Raiders where this giant man with a sword is coming out. And, you know, if you if you're familiar with the movie, you know that Harrison was really sick that day and he was supposed to do this elaborate fight scene and he wasn't feeling it. So he just pulls his gun out and shoots the guy and they kept it in here because it was such a classic. And then that's reminiscent of this where he's not just shooting one guy. He, he just lines them all up and takes them all out with one shot. But it's accidentally. That's what I love. He's not intending to line them up. They just happen to line up and the one shot gets all four of them. And, and they, like you said, the look in his face is like, all right, moving on. <laughs> all right, sweet. All right, so, yeah, at the end of the scene, the good guys all survive, the bad guy dies. The It's a really horrible effect. The only really bad effect in this movie, the tank going off the edge of the cliff, it's like a obvious green screen, obvious model. When the tank hits at the bottom, you can see it's solid inside, not hollow. It's a really terrible effect, and I really wish Spielberg would have spent a little less time showing that effect. I agree. I I I don't remember noticing that maybe necessarily when I first watched it, but certainly as I watched it more and the last couple of times, uh, it really stuck out to you just because, you know, it's 1989. So you're not going to get the technology that you have now, but they did so much that looks so real in this movie. And this, this is not it. Although there is one thing I wanted to point out that main Nazi commander. I don't think they ever name him in the movie. In fact, I watched it twice in the last two days to take notes I could not catch that main villain's name, even though he's the number three villain in the movie. I don't think they ever actually name him. It's funny you say that because, you know, I had written down some of the names of the characters and the actors and so forth. And I want to say that they say it, but either it's the accent is so thick or they say it so fast that you can't possibly understand what it is. <laughs> and, yeah, he's just a cruel, evil guy. I mean, he's, he's, he's like I said, he's right right up there near the top of the bad guys, and yet you just call him the evil Nazi bastard, really. Yeah, although evil Nazi bastard does inspire Sean Connery to give his most Sean Connery line in the movie. And I'll read it, because I wrote this one down word for word, where the evil Nazi guy's slapping Sean Connery in the tank. Why did you come back for the grail? What, what does that tell me? What is in the grail that, you, that I don't know? What does all this tell me? And Sean Connery just says, it tells me that goose-stepping morons such as yourself should try reading books instead of burning them. That's such a great line because he catches his his hand as he's supposed to, as he's about to slap him with his glove one more time, and that's like the one time like the big the way Sean Connery speaks really sticks out to you because he just puts so much emphasis into that line. Yes, goose-stepping, goose-stepping notches. Okay, so we're at the end of the movie here. And there's still about 25 minutes left. And this is, again, one of the most iconic endings of any movie from this era, which is why, to this day, I'm still kind of surprised when all people always say, oh, yeah, Raiders was the only good one and the other ones were just kind of there. But, like, what, you're going to discount the ending of The Last Crusade? Are you kidding me? Okay, so I'll set you up. I'll set you up. We go to the Canyon of the Crescent Moon, and the Nazis are already there first, and they're at the first booby trap. They know this is the, the little temple where the grail is. It's somewhere inside, but there's these three horrible booby traps that only Henry Jones knows how to pass. And in typical Nazi fashion, they're just telling volunteers to walk up there and get beheaded. <laughs> yeah, the first guy they send, he's walking very slowly, but obviously has no clue how to pass the first booby trap. And it's... it's 
I, again, I don't understand the laws of physics, but when the blade takes off his head, it must roll a good 175 feet backwards. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you look, there's like 10 beheaded bodies. So the Nazis have been there a while, and they keep sending volunteers to walk up and face this blade and see if you can get it past it. Okay, let's, let's talk about this one, because this is kind of in- interesting here. This is called, the first booby trap is called the Breath of God. And the only clue that Dr. Henry Jones has is only the penitent man shall pass. Now, when I'm 14, I'd never heard the word penitent. I didn't know what that meant. That means holy, beholden to God, you know, humble. So the key to this test is when this wind blows down the tunnel, you're supposed to kneel. And then this, this, if you kneel, this razor blade, the spinning blade that's supposed to cut off your head will go over you instead. But there's actually a second part to this trap that I never realized the significance until fairly recently. Now, if you, you know what I'm talking about here, this, the, there's a fairly racist undertone here in the second blade. I do not. I, I just, well, as I was watching, I, I noticed that, you know, he has to kneel, which allows the first blade, but then he immediately has to roll because there's a second one that's mm-hmm. going to come along the ground. And so, I, I mean, I don't know, uh, penitent, he realized I have to kneel as if I'm praying, but I doubt that many people are rolling around as they're praying as well. I will fill you in on the significance. And I just learned this yesterday. A friend of mine named Matt Carter, a listener to the show, said, you know, I've seen essays on what that second blade is for, and it's actually fairly nasty if you know about it. And as a history teacher, you may find this interesting. Someone pointed out that the reason there's that second blade, again, there's one that spins from the top to cut off your head, and there's one that spins upwards from the ground to cut you in half, what that is is an anti-Muslim blade. Because if you're a Christian and you kneel, you would kneel straight down. But if you were a Muslim and you kneel, you bow forward and you lay yourself prone on the ground. And so what that is, is that was the Crusaders deciding only Christians would ever be able to find this grail. That is an anti-Muslim blade, what that second blade is. And that's what Indiana Jones figures out real quick. He's like, holy crap, I got to spin. So that's, there's a subtext there. If you realize it, it makes it kind of nasty. That's, that's really cool. I, yeah, I had never made that connection, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a total difference between how a Christian would pray and a Muslim would. Mm -hmm. And since this is based on these, these knights of the first crusade who were obviously Christians, and they're battling against Muslims, that makes perfect sense. So that's that's really cool. Yeah, so we learned something today, and I just learned that yesterday. So this is new to me too. But yeah, so the the Crusaders and the Muslims would not have gotten along. And again, if you think about historically, when this cup would have been buried, stashed, protected, they would not have wanted the Muslims to come and get it. So that makes 100% sense to me, and it makes it real nasty. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised they didn't explain that in the movie, but I know that was intentional. I know Spielberg would have put that in intentionally. Yeah, it makes for a really smart choice that really backs up the accuracy of that. And thank God you have some listeners who you can rely on who actually knows some history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unlike our friend, the history teacher here. Exactly. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Thank God we have history fans listening to this episode. <laughs> I, I, I'm learning things as we, we go. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, none of the volunteers can get through this, this test. They don't realize they're supposed to kneel and then roll. So the Nazis catch the Joneses. They catch uh, Indiana Jones, Sala, Brody, and they say, Indiana Jones, you're going to walk up there and you're going to pass these three tests. So thank God he was listening on the Zeppelin when his dad explained these tests to him. 
But Indiana Jones says, I'm not going through there. You can't make me. And, and then, uh, Donovan says, you're right. We can't, but I can shoot your dad. And with that, he gut shots Dr. Henry Jones. And now, now the race is on for Indiana Jones. You better get through there and get that grail with these healing powers or your dad's going to be dead. So choice is up to you now, buddy. And again, this is just the perfect culmination of this whole movie with this father son relationship. And Donovan knows that this is what it's all about for Indiana is reclaiming this relationship with his dad. And so he's going to do whatever it takes to get to the grail at this point to save it, because that's the only hope his dad has of staying alive. And his dad has taught him enough about the three tests and the clues and, and what he needs to do that he's going to be able to figure them out. Although when he gets to the second test, he almost makes a very fatal mistake. Yeah, see, I had some writers write, or I had some of my listeners write in about this one, because there's grievances with this one. Okay, let me just explain this one to people. Test number two is called the Word of God, and the rule is only in the footsteps of God will he proceed. So basically there's a big tiled floor with a bunch of letters on it, and the way to pass this test is you have to spell out the name of God. And only if you step on the right tiles will you make it. The wrong ones will collapse under you. You'll fall to your death, blah, blah, blah. But I cannot tell you how many people have already mentioned that they, they have flaw, they have a beef with the scene because it's not accurate. And I, and I agree with them. I, I get completely what they're saying. And for some reason, as much as it should bother me, it doesn't <laughs> because he realizes that he has to spell out the word Jehovah. And so there's a nice J standing right in front of him on a tile. So that's an easy first step. And he takes the step. And of course, it's not correct. And the floor opens up and he begins to fall. But of course, he's able to grab outside basically the letters to either side of that J and, and hold himself up and pull himself up. Because as his dad is 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 saying way back at the at the front of the cavern in the ancient Latin, Jehovah began with a letter I, not a letter J. And of course he figures that out after the close call. The beef of course is that the letters on either side of the J would have been incorrect as well. <laughs> they were not the letter I either. So they should have collapsed as soon as he grabbed them and he should have fallen to his death. Now, now that makes for a much less satisfying movie. So I, I certainly understand why they didn't do that, but it does seem to be a fairly significant error that there's no way those those two adjoining tiles should have been able to hold him up. Yeah, that is one of the beefs, that if the J collapses, the ones next to it should collapse too. So he should not be able to hold himself up when he falls through. That's that's one of the beefs. Although, I will say, that is one of the greatest screams I have ever heard in a movie theater when I saw this in 89. When Indy steps on that first tile and falls through, I just remember people shrieking in the theater because it comes out of nowhere. It's a great moment. Because, yeah, as soon as he says Jehovah and you see him step on the J, you have no inkling because none of us know our ancient Latin and knows he needs to step on an I instead. And so you certainly don't see it coming. And But he's Indiana Jones, so he, he's got he's to gotta be able to recoup from that and pick the right letter this time. And there's even another scene, I forget exactly which letter he steps on, but his heel goes back onto the letter behind it and it starts to fall. So, I mean, they're, they're reminding you that any misstep here is going to, to lead you to fall to your untimely death. Mm -hmm. But he, he manages to make it through, thankfully, uh, to get to the third test. Now, I do have a second 
person's beef with this scene, the second test here. And this is from one of my listeners named Joshua Muir, who I've, he's been on the show before. He was on Demolition Man. He's maybe my smartest listener. He's always throwing trivia at me that's way smarter than anything I could think of. He has a huge beef with this Jehovah spelling out scene. Let me read it. I have to read this. He said, quote, Jehovah absolutely starts with a J in Latin if the letter J has been invented. This cave, remember, was supposedly built during the First Crusades, which predates the letter J by about 300 and 400 years. But if that's true, then why was J written on a tile? He says, the earliest uses of Jehovah rather than Yahweh or YHWH also are about 500 years after the First Crusade. So he points out, this whole trap was nonsense and Indy should be dead. To sum that up in a short version, why is there even a J on the tile if they haven't invented it yet? So it's not even a letter in the alphabet, but... And, and, and I suppose there's arguments to be made as well just because they set up the trap. Originally, I mean... Our, our, our buddy, the knight, has been hanging out here for hundreds of years, so maybe he back, went back in and did some work and, you know, added some letters once they uh, invented them or other people came in. But wait, 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 how did he learn they'd invented the J? Is he getting a newsletter in there? Well, I, I assume somebody texted him. <laughs> okay, well, that makes sense. He, 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 he saw it on the Internet. But I have read so many mixed reviews of this scene saying, of course it would have been I, there was no J yet. And then other people say, no, historically it would have been J. So there's a huge, you know, argument, debate still to this day over this scene, whether it's accurate or not. I know Spielberg has has defended it as saying it's accurate. I've seen some reviews that say it is. But again, I have some readers like Joshua who are, you know, scholars of history and say absolutely not that J would not have been there or it would have been spelled with a J either way. So again, it's it's a weird scene, but we'll just gloss over it because it's a fun one. Yeah, I mean, maybe we're sticking our heads in the sand here and just avoiding the obvious, but uh, I'm not going to let it ruin it for us. Although my reader Joshua does also point out, and also while we're talking about accuracy, the Holy Grail isn't real and Sean Connery isn't Harrison Ford's father. So. Oh, well, now that he mentions that, I suppose we do have to suspend some disbelief, don't we? Yeah. Anyway, thank you, Joshua, for that email. I told him I'd read that. Okay, we're at the third test here, the third booby trap, and... This is a big one. People may not remember this one as much, The Leap of Faith, but if you follow the plot of this movie, this is very significant, probably the most significant test of all, because up to this point in the movie, Indiana Jones doesn't believe in any of this nonsense. He calls it fairy tales. But to pass this test, The Leap of Faith, he must believe. And even Donovan says, when he, before he walks out into the booby traps, he says, you know, Mr. Indiana Jones, it's time to ask yourself, what do you believe? So if he doesn't really believe in God and the Holy Grail and all of this by this point, he is not going to pass this test. So this is the big one. Again, the way this all just culminates, not just the relationship, but, you know, his personal story. Uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you think maybe he'd believe more since he did see the effects of the Ark of the Covenant in Raiders of the Lost Ark. But he still doesn't. But yet here he comes to this opening and it's probably 30 feet across and there's no way he's going to be able to make this this jump. And all you can do is step out in faith and understand that something is going to happen and you're going to be protected. And he doesn't have a choice. You know, it's the only way he can possibly um, save his father by by making this leap. And sure enough, he it's this great camera angle as he just kind of slowly lifts his leg up and then 
it's not even a leap. He just kind of takes a step and then you realize that it's an obstacle illusion and there is a pathway there that has been carefully crafted to blend in with the rock face behind it. And this is great camera angle as it shifts over to the right and you can see the um, pathway. And I, I remember when I saw this movie in the theater, um, being blown away by, I guess, the special effect at that moment and just the way they made it look like there was absolutely nothing there. And then you just shift over a little bit and you can totally see it. And it's funny because uh, when I was watching this the other night, my 16 year old son, who has seen this with me before, kind of walked into the room about halfway through the movie. And the very first thing he said was, oh, is this the one with the hidden path at the end? Like, Mm -hmm. that's what he remembered from this movie was this scene and this iconic kind of faith step that that Indiana has to has to make. And that's how he identified the movie was this last test. Yeah. It's a, just a great scene overall, and again, that's that's the test that people forget, but that's technically the most important one, because it's the culmination of Indy's entire story arc over three movies. Does he actually believe in this stuff, finally? And then and then, then when he walks across, uh, he, he has to kind of gather up some sand to, to, to better show the path, and one could argue, oh, he's doing it for, you know, Donovan and, and Elsa, who are going to come behind him, but... I, I think it's for himself because he knows he's got to get back out and he's afraid he's 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 going to not see it again and he he will lose his nerve. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. He's done it once, but he obviously is afraid he's not going to be able to do it the second time. Yeah, what if I get over here and there's no cup after this? Now I don't believe anymore. Exactly. But good thing that he walks in the room and there's 37 different cups sitting there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here we are, the final scene in the movie. Just an hugely iconic scene i love every little bit about this scene just him walking in there's the grail room with all these grails 30 40 cups plates fire all over the place everything's in gold and guarding it all is the one last knight who has got to be what 800 years old at this point yeah and there's the uh, one last final laugh as he kind of turns around and sees Indiana Jones and he grabs his sword and attempts to attack him because he's there to protect the knight. And just the act of physically lifting up a three pound sword causes him to fall backwards because, you know, he's, he's 800 years old. He, 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 he's lacking a little stamina at this point. He's like, you have made it. You are the great, the final knight, Indiana Jones. You are the bravest. You are the most noble. You have bested me in combat. So the grail is yours. So besting him in combat basically meant the old guy picked up a sword and fell over. So. Yeah, but I mean, hey, as many times as Indiana's failed in this movie, here's a here's a battle he won with just standing there. <laughs> yes. Give him an easy win. He needs one in this movie. So, yeah, so uh, Indiana Jones has been the knight that has found the Holy Grail, but the only catch is... Nobody knows which cup in this room is the real grail. There's one real one and like 38 fake ones. And now the Nazis arrive behind him. You got uh, Walter Donovan and Elsa. And they're like, oh, my God, it's amazing. And they have the gun. So Indiana Jones knows he's kind of screwed. But this is where Elsa. Now, Elsa, the femme fatale in this movie, kind of has an interesting story arc. I didn't really notice it until I paid attention to this last movie. She's not especially good or evil. She's just kind of selfish. Like, she believes in science, she believes in the grail, she believes in archaeology, and she really doesn't like the Nazi tactics. There's a scene earlier where she's crying during the book-burning rally. She doesn't like Hitler's tactics, she doesn't like the Nazi tactics. And I swear, I didn't even realize it until this time, she kills Donovan here on purpose. 
it's so funny you say that because I did not make that connection. Certainly when I saw this, when it was first out and I bet I, I probably haven't uh, for many times. And it was, it, it was very clear to me here that she goes out of her way to pick the cup for him. And I always, when I was watching it before, just thought, Oh, she picked bad and she probably feels kind of bad. She kills this guy, but Hey, better him than her. Mm-hmm. But no, she's deliberately choosing the wrong one to to kill him because her sympathies don't really lie with him and we see that jumping ahead here we'll talk about in a minute where she's just all about the grail for herself and so she can you know take out donovan that's one less person she's got to worry about yeah i think she respects indy and she's his intellectual equal they both know science they both know history and she just gets this idiot donovan out of the way here because i think she thinks she and indy can run off with this cup together at the end that's what i think is her motivation and I think that makes perfect sense. And I think this kind of validates her as a character because in, in when you read some of the, I wouldn't even call them criticisms of this movie, they say that this Dr. Elsa Schneider is not the the female lead character anywhere on par with Marion Ravenwood from mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and I don't necessarily disagree with that, but there's a lot more to her than I think is maybe a, that you're aware of until you really look at who she is as a character. And it's just, it's just interesting to me because um, we haven't really mentioned that Alison duty is the actress who plays her. She's 22 years old when she plays this role had had very few film credits. And honestly, when you look at her career had very few after that, this is really it for her. And I mean, I think she does an admirable job holding her own against two icons of the screen and Harrison Ford and Sean Connery. And, and I think Dr. Schneider is yeah she's not the iconic marion ravenwood but i think she's a lot more interesting than maybe she's given credit for yeah i agree i was actually just watching an interview with her they did a uh, retrospect of all the women of indiana jones movies they had them come back and give interviews like 20 30 years later and and allison duty had pointed out you know it was my job to be indiana jones equal i'm i was cast as an equal to him but then they added the henry jones character my character kind of gets pushed to the side but the intention was for her to be very much a female equivalent to indiana jones just again with questionable ethics and morals just like he has just in a different uh, on a different side but not that different from him and we see it right here as you said she deliberately picks a very ornate gold cup and donovan has no reason to question her and and he thinks yep that's the one and of course the only way to find out is to go over to the the water and dip it in and take a drink and and as we alluded to earlier this is uh kind of the the equivalent of the the scene at the end of raiders where the faces are melting off because as as the knight says uh the real grail grail will will give you eternal life but the false grail takes it from you (laughs) and it it's taken from him real quick yeah, I read. I just read somewhere. This is the very first fully digital shot in a movie ever. And I don't know what that means. Like, there's no mat or anything behind it. It's just 100% digital, which I didn't realize. But it's apparently a big special effects showcase where Donovan scoops up the water in the fake grail that Elsa has given him. He drinks it, and he starts aging. And all of a sudden, he... Uh, basically goes full evil dead treatment here where his face turns into (laughs) claymation and he mummifies instantly. And it's really kind of a disgusting scene, not as bad as the melting faces in the first one, but again, what I think was really the PG 13 moment here. Yeah. And I would agree. And then you get to the point where he's, you know, 
fully skeletal and his his entire skeleton bashes against the wall and and what was left of him is shattered into 500 pieces and then the line that i have probably quoted more from this movie than any other is right after this when it's just so understated but so perfect when the when when the 873 year old knight just very matter of factly looks and says he chose poorly <laughs> i just love that line i mean when we were in college and i you know some one of us would do something stupid i mean this is always the line we used that you chose poorly and we i still do it with my friends to this day i just the line it just i just love it he underplays it so well yeah that's my line from this movie it's so effective and uh you can multitask you use it in almost any situation he chose poorly and if you will ask fans of this movie you will have that line come out because it's so iconic and it's it's spoken by this guy who's on screen for three minutes but it's just it's just the the massive understatement to what you've just seen this guy completely explode and oh my by the way he he didn't choose correctly no thanks yeah oh okay one observation here is where donovan scoops he takes the the grail which is obviously the fake one elsa set him up to die he goes and scoops some water and drinks it that's got to be the most stagnant-ass water on the history of the Earth. It's been there for 800 years. <laughs> but it's amazing because to look at it, it looks nice and crystal clear. But in reality, you got to think all kinds of stuff's been growing in there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so Donovan's dead. He dies horrifically. But now it's Indy's turn to choose the Grail. And now he and Indy, or he and... He and Elsa are kind of working together. And they both realize the cup of Jesus Christ or whatever of the time would not be anything ornate or made of gold. It would have been a poor carpenter's cup. It would have been something looking very humble. And there's one, you know, sad ass looking cup back there in the back behind all the other ones. And they're like, that's it. That's the only one it could possibly be. And so Indy scoops it and drinks from it. And then the follow up to the past line where the knight just says, you have chosen wisely. Yeah. The perfect counterpoint to that. And you know, when the first time you see this movie, you know how movies work and you know that he's the hero, but still like putting yourself in his shoes that there's literally only one way to know whether he chose correctly. And he's just watched what happened to Donovan and just, you know, as a viewer, I think you deep down know how the movie's going to end, but still there's just this tension as he's forced to drink and you're just praying. It's not going to be a repeat of what you've just seen. Yeah, okay. This does lead to an interesting theological question. I've always wondered about this. Maybe it's obvious in the movie and I just missed it. So the knight then says, now you have drunk from the Holy Grail, grants you immortality, blah, blah, blah. But the Grail cannot pass beyond the great seal. There's a seal outside on the floor. The Grail can't pass beyond that, so it can't be taken out of here. And the knight says, that is the boundary and the price for immorta immortality. So Indiana Jones runs down, uses the grail to pour on his father's gunshot wound and heals him. And here's my question. Are Indiana Jones and his dad now immortal? And that is the question I think a lot of people um, leave this movie with. And I think the only way you can interpret the knight's instructions is the only way you're sticking to immortality is if you yourself don't go past the great seal as well. Because it's obviously worked for him, but not only can the Grail itself not leave, but I always took it as you can't either. Yeah. Because once you do, you go past the Great Seal, your immortality is. And that's why the knight has been there all the time. Yes, he's 
he's protecting it, but the only way he's going to be able to protect it is if he stays in there because he knows if he just wants to go out and walk around the desert for a while and maybe grab a burger or something, he's going to die. So he knows he's got to stay there, and for them to be immortal, they would have to too. <laughs> he's going to find a burger stand out in the desert? Well, you know, <laughs> it's it's funny because, uh, of course, this scene is, is filmed at, at Petra, which has since become very famous, but it's become very famous because everyone calls it, you know, the place where Indiana Jones was. So there's all the, you know, it's this important archaeological site and this ancient, but the, there are literal burger stands right next to it now because of all the tourists that come there. Wow. So the night would have been okay. He would have, he would have grabbed a burger. All right. Okay. So here we go. The end of the movie is, you know, all's well that ends well. Indiana Jones has found the grail. His dad is immortal or his dad is healed, and uh, they have saved the Grail. The only catch is the Grail can't leave the room. But, of course, Elsa, the uh, female counterpart to Indiana Jones, is going to get a little greedy because she wants that Grail. She wants the riches that would come. She wants all the, you know, uh, all the, the, the fame that would come to her if she's the one that finds the Grail and brings it out. So she takes it and tries to leave and tries to sneak out. And Indy warns her, the knight said, don't cross that seal, Elsa. And she does. And basically, the entire thing starts collapsing. And this is the final defense against the Grail being stolen. Yeah, the floors get huge cracks in it. And, you know, they're in danger of falling through the cracks to their death. And she's about to fall. And, of course, Indiana grabs her hand. And the, the, the grail has has fallen onto a tiny ledge perfectly, of course, but also approximately one half inch out of her out of her reach. But in her greed, she's insistent on the fact that she can reach it. But, of course, she can't. And he loses his grip on her. Uh, he, she's wearing gloves and her hand comes out of the glove and down she goes. And then the tables get turned because Indiana falls in the exact same position that she was just in. And his dad comes and grabs his arm, and it's just a repeat where he's like, I can get it, I can get it, I can get it, and then the payoff. When Henry looks at him and says, Indiana, which he hadn't hardly called him the whole movie, and Indiana turns and looks at him, you know, face-to-face, right in eye contact, he goes, let it go. Basically saying, this is what we've come for, we've reconnected, that's the important thing here, let the grail go. And he pulls him up and he lets it go. Yeah, so at the end of the day, all the Nazis die. Elsa Schneider falls to her death and nobody gets the grail. And it just, uh, it's just the temple is being pulled down in one giant earthquake. Everything's collapsing. No one will ever see the Holy Grail ever again. And Indiana Jones and his dad get up and leave. And I always love this little moment. They, The knight, the long-suffering knight who's been there 800 years, comes out and waves to them. And they wave to him. Like, why is he waving to them? It's like, hey, thanks for fucking up my temple. <laughs> because exactly. Like, th- this is the great unanswered question of this movie is what what happens to the night now? You know, <laughs> because I guess technically the grail stayed there. Mm-hmm. It didn't. But it also was like down in this 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 chasm in the ground. I mean, he's not going to be able to pull it out. Yeah. What's he guarding now? Uh, yeah, exactly. What's what's his purpose at this point? But yet he probably can't get out and leave because the whole place is ruined. Well, I mean, he could go cross the seal and he will die instantly. He could grab a fake grail and drink some of that stagnant water and die instantly. So most of his career options at this point involve dying instantly. Which, you know, maybe after 800 years of sitting in the same room with nothing to do, he's ready. Yeah, maybe that's why he's waving. Thank you for releasing me from this torture of eternal hell. Yes, <laughs> exactly exactly 
But I, I was struck when I watched this again this week that, um, you know, now that, uh, you know, at the time that this movie came out, I'm, I'm in high school, I'm 15, you know, and I had a good relationship with my dad. But, you know, you don't necessarily think that in, in terms of that. And, and now that I'm a father and I have my own sons, you know, this movie is obviously all about the redemption of the relationship between the father and the son. And it just so happens to come out in the same year as one of my other favorite movies, which is Field of Dreams, mm. which is all about the redemption of a father and the son. And it's, it's these movies now that so many fathers talk about, you know, make a big impact on them. I mean, Field of Dreams especially makes a big impact on them because, you know, hey, dad, want to have a catch and all this sort of thing. But, you know, people don't talk about this movie that came out at the same time. But, you know, that, that just ending scene where finally dad is able to look his son in the eye and go, I know I've ignored you my whole life. I've worried about the grail. It's been all I cared about. I didn't even pay attention to you when you were a kid. I didn't even feed you because all this is all I cared about. But right now, let it go because it's just you and me. It, it tugs at the heartstrings a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I did. I definitely watch it a little differently now that I'm older. And my father's not with us anymore. He died 10 years ago. But so yeah, I definitely watch it a little more differently now, especially the line at the end, which I kind of forgot where Indiana Jones tells his dad, you didn't get the grail. You came all this way for the grail and you didn't get it. Why are you happy? What did you get out of this? And Henry Jones just says illumination, which is a really underrated line. I like that line. It is because it really leaves you thinking, what exactly does he mean? Because you don't necessarily think that's the word you're going to choose to describe this rekindled relationship with your son. And I think that's part of it, but he's learned a lot more along the way than just that. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's the the true grail was the friends that we made along the way. And then, of course, we have to end with one more moment as one of those friends, Marcus Brody, practically rides off to his death uh, because the, he's the idiot who has to be made fun of, of one last time as he flops around on his horse <laughs> trying to leave the desert that he probably has no clue how to yeah. get out of. Then he steps in a bear trap and an anvil falls on his head. <laughs> <laughs> Just kill him off now. <laughs> yeah, he, he should have fallen in the chasm with the, with Elsa. Okay, so what I love about this movie, just this is just almost a perfect movie, is that it's got such a poignant, you know, touching, iconic final scene, that whole thing with the, the, the night he chose poorly, the grail, the illumination, making up with his father. Such a wonderful movie, yet Spielberg still knows to end this movie on a laugh, and I have to love that about this movie. Uh, yeah, I completely agree because that was the the theme of the movie. It's it's touching, it's it's heart it's heart affirming, but at the same time, it's going to make you laugh, and and that's what happens. And, and you know, we get the, the the classic one more reveal of something we didn't know, um, which is that uh, you know one more time he calls him Junior, and one more time Indiana gets ticked at it says i like to be called indiana and we find out from henry uh, senior that they named the dog indiana and he uh, just uh, i love harrison ford's response i got a lot of fond memories about that dog it's just it's a great ending and basically the last line of the movie i forget if it's either uh indy saying i have a lot of fond memories about the dog or sala saying you are named after the dog <laughs> That is such a great laugh to go out on. And then they just literally ride off into the sunset and the Indiana Jones music starts up. And again, this was voted in 94 among all these college students in the country, the best movie of the 80s and 90s. And again, this movie was five years old by that point. So it wasn't like 
like recency bias. It hadn't just come out the month before. This was people talking about a movie that was already five years old. And this is the movie that showed up on more ballots than any other. And I just want to point that out to people. This is and always will be a very beloved movie. Uh, there's no question about it. And, I, you know, I don't know if we've convinced anybody in this of of that maybe liked it but didn't put it as the best Indiana Jones movie. Hopefully we've, we've made at least people consider that and think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, when, when they're naming the movie, the last crusade and they end it with them literally riding the sunset, you know, everyone assumes that was, was such a great trilogy all along. They plan to make it a trilogy. And then as fans, you love it so much that when, when they start talking about maybe making a fourth, you can't help but get excited. And then of course we know how that ends up. And of course now as we talk here and, 2021 they're supposedly filming a fifth even though harrison ford is pushing 80 at this point you don't know how that's going to go and so forth and so there's a part of you that just loves the character so much loves these movies so much that of course yes you want more but as you started this entire podcast off you don't do sequels for a reason because they generally don't live up and the certainly the more of them you get it's this law of diminishing returns but at the same time, you love these characters so much, you want to see them as many times as you can. But I think we can all admit now, if that would have been where it ended, it would have been the perfect way to end it. And that's the thing. This just feels like a capper to the Indiana Jones franchise. It just feels like the ending. That's That ending is so perfect. They ride off into the sunset. This is exactly how the franchise should end. So I just choose to believe it did end here and then nothing ever happened after that. Because seriously, in 2022, Indiana Jones is going to play like... What is he going to play, a Knight Templar at this point? Is he 800 years old? What's going on? I Put the chain mail on him and just have him walking around pointing people's flaws out saying you chose poorly, and I think you got yourself a movie. Yeah, but anyway, that's our coverage of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, one of these fantastic movies that, again, I was not really planning to cover on staff picks because I just assumed everybody thought about it as highly as I did. But I've really heard a lot of people in recent years just say that, you know, Raiders was a masterpiece and then the other ones were just kind of there. And I really felt I had to step in and do an episode about this movie that I have always loved so much. And and not only does Steve love it so much, but when I mentioned I was doing a staff picks episode on on Facebook, like, I got so many comments on that thread, way more than most movies I talk about. Like, there are so many people out there that I don't think don't realize other people love this movie as much as they do. Yeah, and I I saw that thread you referenced, and I was glad to see other people who were in agreement with us. And, and there's going to be people who won't be in this, won't necessarily change their mind. But, you know, I'm just so um, blessed that when you and I talked about me hopefully coming back on again, um, and I threw out some possibilities uh, basically all, all, all movies that had some sort of historical aspect, because obviously that appeals to me as a history teacher. When you agreed to this one, I selfishly was super glad. I would have loved talking about anything with you, but you know, this movie holds such a special place in my heart. And even though I might be getting pigeonholed as the Sean Connery guy, um, that, the, you know, he's, he's a big part, obviously, of why this movie is, is so good. And, and I joke because, my my wife and I have been married for 20 years now, and we've always kind of had this understanding that if there was one man that she could leave me for, it would be Sean Connery, which is mm-hmm. you know creepy now that he's dead. <laughs> but she she's loved him forever, and so of course this is that movie that partially because of him. Anytime we're flipping around the channels, if it's on, it it's it's absolutely required that we watch it, no matter how many times we've seen it. And it's just because of the joy it brings. I love a good action movie. It delivers on all of that, but it's got 
it's got the, the, the heart fulfilling moments as well as the comedy. And you said at the beginning, it's, it's the perfect way to end the, the series, but it was the perfect culmination of everything they tried to do with Indiana Jones for three movies. Yeah. And I, just to follow up on one thing you said, I would say this is probably one of the 10 funniest movies of the eighties and it's not even a comedy. So that's all I'll just throw out there. And yeah, it's, it's one of those movies you don't walk into it expecting it and you walk out and you realize I laughed a whole lot in that movie more so than, you know, most of the comedies that I go to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we're past two hours here. I want to wrap this up. I don't want to go too much longer, but uh, anything else you want to add before we sign off and send our minions out to go rewatch this movie again and remember how much they love it? All I will say is if you listen to this and maybe rewatch it yourself and you tend to agree with us that this is the best Indiana Jones movie, then you indeed have chosen wisely. That's the exact joke I was hoping you would end on. So thank you. <laughs> All right, once again, I'm Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. Until next time, I'll be out there searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. I'll talk to you guys later. Stay away from the false grails. Bye. Goose-stepping moron.